Welcome to The Modern Rustic. I'm Russell. I'm Zach. We are a community-based podcast from the heart of the Fraser Valley, where we have classic conversations about our current culture and the impact we have on it. Uh, you haven't read a book in five years? I don't think that I've finished a book in five years. The, the last one that I read, and it's very, very short, is uh, it's called The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. Have that oh. on my shelf and haven't read it yet. It's really good, and, and I read it as a non-reader in two shifts at work. Right on. So yeah, so it's a short one. It's very short, like a yeah. couple hundred pages or something. Yeah, it, it's really cool. It's told uh, from the perspective of like a a very young boy, like mm. probably eight nine years old. So it kind of does that thing of like you can't really trust a lot of what he's saying because you're mm. seeing it through the lens of such a young kid. It's so. it's really really cool, and I've actually I. I give it to my wife after she read it and then i think i read it one more time after that because i liked it so much that's the beauty of like short books like that yeah like, you can just read mm-hmm. them it's like you know super like, super fast yeah. super fast like uh oh, i'm trying to think of an example do you have an example can you think of one yeah actually um there's a couple of short books i've read they're part of um an ongoing series by becky chambers okay. the first one's called a psalm for the wild built and the second one's called a prayer from the crown shy I'm currently reading A Prayer for the Crown Shy, um, but they're solar punk novellas. Ooh. What is solar punk? Solar punk is, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a huge authority on, on how to properly describe it, but from my understanding, it's pretty much like a kind of subgenre of sci-fi or um, kind of a movement, you could say, that envisions the world with more of like a natural um, integration, almost mm-hmm. like society, like, you know, society as we know it, but like step back a little bit from um, major industrialization and focus more on like kind of living in harmony with reclaimed natural space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Neat. It's a really interesting um, vision and it centers around uh, a tea monk who has just kind of always lived like within these um this kind of like small segment of the human population and they're all kind of like separated from the rest of like you know the wild essentially and you know years ago in um in technology there was like huge advancements in ai and robots that kind of caused a bit of a uprising and separation um and this tea monk decides he wants to leave outside the borders to kind of see what the world is like. Mm-hmm. And he comes in contact with a uh, sentient android named Moss Cap. <laughs> and they just go on a walk through the woods and talk about life and huh. existence. Whoa. And it's really nice. I love that. Yeah. That was that took a turn. I wasn't sure where that was going to go. <laughs> oh, and that's... so the whole book is kind of just a conversation between... Yeah, these two characters. It's pretty much. I mean, there's things that happen, but it's not like this huge, kind of grand like hero's journey type right. story, um, which is typically what you expect from sci-fi and yeah, yeah. Anything with thing. punk in the name is usually like a <laughs> fantasy setting yeah. of some kind. I would, yeah, I would argue that it definitely kind of reads almost like a bit of a philosophical novel. Oh, cool. But just very positive and uplifting and kind of reminds you of, you know, um, the fact that we're all put here to live first and foremost, and it kind of addresses, I think, feelings of confusion and existential discontent. Hmm. 
in a really positive way. Yeah, I love cool. that. See, yeah. it's so refreshing when you get a book that's not just like, oh, it's it's uh, an action-packed adventure with a classic love story or or romance tagline, and then it wraps up nicely. It's something you want something different sometimes, right? Maybe just a mm. slice of life, right? Those are those are nice too. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 What's the last book you guys read? The last, uh, the last like one you finished. finished? Yeah. Um, that would be, uh, the last book I finished. I've got like three going right now, so I'm trying to go back to whatever. Um, Jack Carr's fifth book in the series. Haven't read the other four, but I read, <laughs> started on five. Yeah, it was a good. It was. A, it's actually a good story because I was traveling to Florida earlier this year, and then in the Florida Jacksonville airport, they have all these like book carts everywhere. So it's like a leave one, take one type deal. Oh, okay, yeah. I love those. It's so cool. I had never seen that before in an airport. So I just, oh, this is amazing. So I had a, a, a just a crappy paper bag. I left it there. And then I, 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 we had a guest on here like a year and a half ago. And he talked about this series. And I was like, oh, yeah, I should read one of those because they were always, int- they sounded interesting. So I picked up this book and it was the fifth one in the series. So I'm like, whatever. So I started reading it and then. Took it took a bit to get through it, but yeah, it was like a CIA revenge thriller type oh, okay. deal. It's like I uh, pick up this gun with this exact caliber and this thing, and <laughs> I'm like, all right, yeah. yeah. And then he got revenge on his... like a Tom Clancy esque. Yeah, very Tom yeah. Clancy. Yeah, there's a there was a series a while ago called Stony Man, and it was like a similar series. And so I always mm. say like I always compare it to Stony Man because that was a very like a like an army tactical thriller. Mm. Yeah, I think that was the last one I read. What about you? Um, the last one I read was Horror Store by Grady Hendrix. Okay. Um, it's a very, very tongue-in-cheek novel um, about uh, retail store employees who kind of live in this like no-name brand Ikea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or not live in, oh, I said that, work in <laughs> no-name okay. brand type Ikea. It feels like it sometimes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> when you stumble on your words, sometimes funny things happen. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they work in this no-name brand Ikea and weird things kind of start to happen and two employees have to stay overnight um, doing a kind of security work. Mm through some unfortunate scenarios and they end up being haunted by the ghost of like an, a demented um prison warden i guess whoa okay um and he intentionally kind of makes the trapped souls of prisoners work in the basement of this of this no name uh, Ikea. No name Ikea oh, and make wild. like torture devices for trap souls. <laughs> There's other things that happen. That is kind of a spoiler. <laughs> we might want to put some, I don't know if we can do that, but yeah, uh, it's awesome. <laughs> it's a great book. Then the book is meant to look like an Ikea catalog. No way. Every chapter starts with like these designs that are made to look like a regular kind of product that you'd see in a store like that. <sighs> With complete with like the um, Swedish names for everything, yeah, um, and just descriptions of the products that get increasingly more unhinged as they go on. <laughs> You'll awesome. start off with like a desk, like you know the one we're in front of right now, and it'll 
by the end you're reading about like a treadmill with spikes on it and like restraints in the top and stuff like that (laughs) it's just weird it's awesome i love that creativity like you (laughs) could just write a horror book or you could do it like different like that Mm -hmm. oh that's that's so refreshing do you know how old that book is I believe it came out in 2014. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's not, like, super old either. Mm-hmm. Um, and Grady Hendrix has since come out with numerous novels, a lot of um, which have become fairly popular, including, like, My Best Friend's Exorcism and uh, Final Girl Support Group and the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm. I don't recognize any of that, but it all sounds great. <laughs> He's got some. He's got some fun stories. So, are you? Is this just your like main thing? You're just reading horror all the time. <laughs> like that's what it's coming across as. A little bit, um, amongst other things, for sure. Uh, this is the part where I drop. I have very significant ADHD, so I'm likely to read like five books at a time. Whoa! Oh wow! Uh, it takes me also longer to finish those books. That's right. not a flex. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a mad genius. I get it. I usually have three or four going at one time. Yeah, it's, you know, it's just kind of whatever you're paying attention to at that moment. Um, I try to have some kind of rhythm to it, like balance nonfiction with fiction or, Mm -hmm. you know, heavier topics with like a lighter book or something like that. Um, So, yeah, I read primarily horror. It's one of my, you know, big favorites. It's a special interest of mine. Um, but I also read a lot of other stuff. I really like magic realism. Um, mm. love, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Ruki Murakami. Um, that sounds familiar. What's that from? Ruki Murakami? Yes. Yeah. He wrote, uh, Kafka on the Shore and Norwegian Wood. Mm. Uh, numerous. He's wrote, written so many books. He has a very popular memoir called What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. Um... 1Q84. Okay. Yeah, tons. And none of this rings any bells. <laughs> no, that sounded familiar, though. <laughs> I wonder. Okay, I'll look into it. So you're obviously a huge horror fan. Mm-hmm. What what got you into it? Yeah, um, I think I've always had, I've always had a bit of an interest in, in things that are dark and macabre. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny when I was in high school, I had a substitute teacher in one of my classes who I'd had in elementary school mm. and I was like, Hey, I haven't seen you since grade like four. <laughs> How are you doing? He's like, Oh, I'm doing well. Do you still have a weird obsession with the dark and unnatural? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And it's true. I did. Um, I really, I think it was primarily aesthetics at first. Like, as a kid, I loved movies like Corpse Bride and mm-hmm. um, the Disney uh, cartoon about Ichabod Crane and Sleepy Hollow. Oh, yeah. Um, and then when I was a little bit older, I watched the Tim Burton Sleepy Hollow, and it was awesome. <laughs> it is. <laughs> that is film. a very underrated movie. It is. Yeah. It's so fun. Yeah. It's also, I think, the perfect Halloween movie. It's not even just a horror film. It's dark fantasy, and yeah. there's aspects of horror, there's action, there's, it's just tons of good vibes it's a very like consistent movie yeah in that, tone that's one of those movies that i was too young when i watched it for the first time so Fair. it kind of like <laughs> scarred me a little bit but also like 
I, I think gave me a tolerance for gore and that kind of stuff. Like, oh yeah, the image of that tree is burned into my mind. Like the horse <laughs> jumping into the yeah the tree made of entrails and mm, yeah, mm. that's fair. Yeah. As a kid, one of my favorite shots in that was definitely uh, where uh, Johnny Depp's character Ichabod is inspecting like a. a headless corpse yeah and he gets all his weird spectacles out and he yeah. bends over the body and he just pokes at random shit until and he's it... like peeling the neck off the yeah <laughs> it like squirts blood in his yeah. face and as a kid i was like that's awesome yeah i was like nine i was so young <laughs> to be watching that movie but man yeah that's a great movie it's so fun yeah. it's been a minute since i've seen that one i should re- i should go back to that one. well halloween's coming up i guess isn't it sure is well you know yeah for, it's July for but. all the people that are, all those people that, like, can't just be, are basically just waiting for Halloween season. It's like almost Halloween season. That's fair. Yeah, for the Halloween people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Are you one? Are you a Halloween person? Absolutely. I mean, I, I kind of live Halloween all year round. That's fair. Oh, yeah. there's always an excuse to watch a horror movie at my place. Um, but. Yeah, like some people get really, really nerdy about Christmas, like, you know, eight months in advance going crazy about it. And yeah, that's me with Halloween. (laughs) So what do you do? What do you do on Halloween? Do you have like a ritual or... Or do you have not like a ritual like capital R? Like, also, if there's one of those, I'd like to hear (laughs) If you actually do have a capital R ritual, I'd love to hear about it. (laughs) No, I'm actually, I mean, I think it's exciting because it's something that I love doing, but it's actually fairly boring. I mean, I just like (laughs) to have some friends over and maybe have a few beers and watch some scary movies. That's fair enough. Keep it, keep it good and simple. Yeah. Scary, you know, scary movies, good friends and good drinks. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much, sounds great to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a perfect Halloween. Okay. Now, Zach loves movies. Mm. Russell loves movies. Where are you on horror movies? I'm with you right there. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. I mean, obviously we're here because I'm doing, like, you know, literary stuff, and I like to write and read, but, yeah, I mean, so much of my love for horror started with movies. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, we're all in agreement here. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get into the writing, but, I mean, we do have to talk about movies. Yes. It's been a I'm really always, long it's time. Kind of, it's kind of to talk about horror episode. movies. Yeah. Yeah. When Zach and I and our other co-hosts started the podcast, all we did was talk about movies. <laughs> Nice. And the first now, like twenty episodes of the podcast. Yeah, are probably. Just, yeah. And now it's sometimes we don't even touch on it every episode, so it's like I'm glad that we can just like dive into like whatever stuff we're gonna dive into today. But, oh yeah, absolutely. Let's, um, introduce you before we forget. On here. <laughs> Change sure. of format. Russell's remembering to. Yeah, we always forget. So just guests. tell us your name and why you wanted to be on the show. Yeah. Sure. Um, my name is Kellen Cavanaugh. Uh, I uh, used to work for the UFB Cascade. I'm a local writer. Um, I'm one of the members of Common Room. And I recently decided to start a literary magazine called The Local Crypt uh, that is horror-focused, publishing short fiction, flash fiction, um, essays, poetry, if people have it, <laughs> and visual art. Um, just to kind of celebrate both the local art scene and horror. I noticed, you know, in my experience being a part of, especially like the kind of rising writing scene in the Fraser Valley, that there is um, a pretty strong crossover with writers and horror fans. Mm. Um, 
and I wanted to open up an opportunity to put some put some more writing out there in the horror genre. Love that. Yeah, I like I love that that sense of community where like you can you can pump out that the local crypt magazine and then like it's just a gathering of everything. Like mm-hmm. you've got people from all walks of life. They're like, "Oh, this is cool. You know, this is what I love. Let's just mix it up in one pot and see what pops out." <sighs> it's exciting. And Absolutely. you're supporting local voices and yeah, we get that. And there's so that. many ways that I think horror can be relevant. Um, even to people who are not inclined to be fans of horror, um, you'll often find people who are like, I'm not a horror fan, but I really liked this kind of adjacent insert, whatever, you know, I'm not a Mm. horror fan, but I really liked Tim Burton's cartoon movies Right. or, um, I'm not a horror fan, but I remember reading Stephen King's it as a young person and loving it, Mm. (laughs) even if it traumatized me for life, (laughs) like... I've, I've heard that quite a bit, um, and as I've kind of grown in my love for the genre and studied it, I've also found it to be such an interesting vehicle for personal and social commentary. Yeah. Um, it can, it's so interesting how things, you know, stories and images that are sometimes really dark or rooted in, you know, oppression, evil, some really uplifting narratives can come out of that some really powerful narratives and come out of it. Um, and I've found that, you know, I, I'll be honest, like I struggle pretty hard with, you know, uh, depression and anxiety and, you know, kind of just the general issues of life. Um, and some of the stories and, you know, movies as well that have like helped me the most or like helped me contextualize things that needed, you know, that I needed help with were often found in horror movies. Mm. And I'm happy to expand on that as well. Yeah, I'd love to, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, we have to. Yeah. You can't just drop that on us <laughs> and just leave it there hanging. Uh, so, yeah, you you feel like a, a connection to horror in that way and that it kind of guided you through life a little bit? Absolutely. Um, yeah. I was, um, you know, growing up, my, my family wasn't, uh, super wealthy and you know or wealthy in any aspect we moved around quite a few times and you know sometimes like the places that we were living in like they were nice but there was kind of this expectation that it might change at any moment mm-hmm. um, just you know just stuff like that things were always changing and you know I was just kind of growing up in that kind of economic kind of um, anxiety I guess without even realizing it um and on top of that I I have uh, I'm on the autism spectrum um and I have pretty severe ADHD and as a young kid I definitely struggled to make friends and connect with others um around me as um you know as easily as other kids did I definitely was able to make friends and I would you know especially as I started getting older, present um, pretty, like, confident. Um, But in the back of my mind, there was always that anxiety and um, that kind of struggle in school and stuff like that. Um, And I guess I found in 
I mean, we came from a Christian family. There was always the acknowledgement that, you know, there's darkness. Um, <laughs> notions of, like, heaven and hell and demons and stuff like that. We read about it. I was exposed to it. Maybe it left more of an impression than it needed to. <laughs> um, but I found in things that I was exposed to, limited as it was, um, my parents were a little stricter on media and stuff like that, especially cause I was super curious about everything. Mm. <laughs> um, the stuff that I did have access to often gravitated to the supernatural and dark and otherworldly or stories about people who felt lonely and disconnected from other people. Um, and so, yeah, it was, you know, I think horror as well as stories like sci- science fiction and fantasy stories as well, all really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. in a in a strong sense um yeah i got really obsessed with ancient egypt for a while there specifically <laughs> about their everyone, mummification process yeah i think everybody goes through that phase. <laughs> yeah. i'll be honest everyone yeah. goes through that a little bit I remember being in school and, and teachers would be like, tell us a cool fact. And I'd be like, the Egyptians put hooks up people's noses to take their brains out when they're mummifying people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, that's cool. Did you, you know, learn other things? And I was like, yes, but let, there's eight more steps. Let me tell you about <laughs> it. I need to tell you all steps. Uh, yes, yeah, so true. <laughs> For me, it was the uh, the canoptic jars. Yes. Yeah, very those cool. are so cool. Right. Uh, I was yeah. Where was it? I think it was in Florida, and then they had some, and I was like, "What is this? This is so just like they're little." Uh. What What is this? Uh, canoptic jars is basically like put organs and stuff in jars and, oh. and seal them, so you don't right. really. So they would like go into the tombs, and then they would find these jars, and then they would like you would never know what was in them. Right. So it could be anything, head like brains and hearts and whatever. Huh. I think that's how it went. That's pretty much. Roughly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been a long time since I've deep dived mm. <laughs> into that subject, but from what I remember, yeah, we, we might get fact checked. Yeah. And Basically, that's okay. I don't. I don't people, claim to be an expert. <laughs> yeah. Some part of the person went in a jar and then they sealed it. I'm pretty right. sure. All right. Yeah. Neato. It was all very captivating. It is. Especially to the young, young mind. I, the young mind. Yeah. Well, it's just so different, right? Like mm. Culturally, I mean, yeah. yeah in, in the Western world, you grow up and it's like, yeah, somebody dies, you bury him. Stick him in the ground but, and forget about it. Yeah. I think ancient Egypt is like one of the first times you're exposed to, to post-death uh, mourning rituals. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's actually a really good way, good uh, way to look at it. I never really thought about it like that. But, yeah, I mean, especially when you're young and you learn about, especially when you're young, yeah, when you learn about death for the first time, and then you kind of look at the way our culture treats it, and maybe the corner that you're in has more reverence for it or more ritual with it, or no ritual at all, and you see, like, other, you know, other places around the world and other times in history of people having entire processes and Mm -hmm. you know celebrations or mourning periods um all centering around the dead and i think it's at at once kind of like a a cathartic experience of being like oh none of us really know and we all have ways of going through it together Mm -hmm. um and it still also tickles that like morbid fascination yeah yeah 
I think, yeah, it, it's that for sure. I think that, and even, like, delving into horror as well, like, there's, mm. there's, there's life, and then you want, you're always looking for that little bit extra, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that splash of the supernatural, or whatever it is. It's like, okay, maybe there's something else, right? There's the, 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 the documentable, the seeable, the observational world, and then everybody, deep down, they're all, they all want to see that extra step you know Mm. what's 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 there that we can't see right and that's the basis of like all fiction oh absolutely it's yeah Yeah. i don't know what the word is for that but we're all looking for that thing yeah right you're gonna make me start talking about joseph campbell again so we better (sighs) move on um joseph campbell tell me about joseph campbell uh so okay (laughs) we got all day man yeah uh joseph campbell was a uh a theologian uh, in like the seventies, eighties. Uh, he wrote a lot of books on uh, on the subject of like the stories we tell and how they all follow the same kind of format and how it's informed by uh, because he was a theologian first. He was a he was a devout Catholic, okay, um, and, and remained that way until the day that he died. But he also talked a lot about how uh, all the world religions basically follow the same format um and going forward in time all of the movies that we watch they all follow the same format the hero's journey you referenced earlier mm-hmm. that's joseph campbell started that whole thing interesting um, yeah i love um, learning new things yeah it's awesome yeah it's great his books are very dry and very difficult <laughs> to read um but, I appreciate the summary <laughs> yeah um but yeah it, it's basically all informed by this idea that early man and we've evolved to observe a pattern of death and rebirth mm-hmm. so we we evolved uh learning how to grow crops sow crops uh and, and reap a harvest and then replant again from that same harvest so we became accustomed to things having kind of a cyclical nature that's why the stories we tell typically have a death and rebirth cycle so mm-hmm. take for example the story of jesus christ you know death rebirth resurrection 100 Years of Solitude does that on steroids, and it's awesome. 100 Years of Solitude? Yes. Tell me about that. <laughs> if, I, if I can throw add a little interjection there. Yeah, just, please do. Please um, make yeah, me one, stop talking about Joseph Campbell again. I want to hear more about this because I'm interested. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, 100 Years of Solitude is essentially the book that kind of popularized magic realism mm. in North America. Um, and it's a... Uh, Colombian novel, I believe. I hope I'm not mistaken there. I'll look it up for you. <laughs> but I believe, yeah, I believe um, Marquez was Colombian. If I'm wrong, I'll I'll find out. Um, but yeah, essentially, it follows this um, family in a fictional town in Colombia called Macondo, and it's about just their life, founding this community um, over multiple generations. And the way that um, time works, Columbia, yeah. awesome. And the way that time works in this uh, in this book is, you know, it's kind of on a constant death and rebirth cycle, right. and things that you know happen early on will happen again in different ways. Like right. things and people will come back. People who die, their souls will kind of, you know, some of their souls will still be walking around okay. as ghosts, just interacting with the people. Yeah. Sometimes it makes things a little confusing, um, <laughs> but 
you know, if you follow along with it and you kind of just sink into the world, it's just this really phenomenal, um, phenomenal story. Um, essentially just about humanity, hmm. um, sent like kind of distilled into this, uh, um, this family. It's yeah, it's, it's a fantastic novel and I, I highly recommend. It's also just really cool to see um, that particular version of magic realism. Yeah. Yeah. But Joseph Campbell. Yeah. <laughs> Time and death. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he basically just talks about, you know, how the story that we tell, the hero's journey, which I should correct myself, he didn't come up with the idea of the hero's journey. That's, that's a very old thing, I think, that dates back to ancient Greece. Mm -hmm. like right. Plato talked about the hero's journey. But... Um, yeah, he basically talks about how every story we tell is exactly the same. It's informed by this death and rebirth cycle that we use to comfort ourselves. Hmm. And you can compare, you know, you can compare the, the New Testament to Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. And they're sure, yeah. essentially when you boil it down to its base parts, they're the same story. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 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 It's, the specifics are really interesting too, right? You see... You take any story, you plug it onto this matrix or this chart or this outline, and it's like, okay, you can clearly pick out, okay, he meets a, a mentor figure who trains him, and he finds a love interest, and he was betrayed, and he somebody seeks redemption, and then there's a climax, and then everybody's happy at the end. It's great. It's really cool. Yeah. But it, it, it does, like, put a spotlight on the fact that as much as we want to say that there's creativity and there is a lot of stories are the same yeah in their base elements yeah but that's also really cool and beautiful because mm -hmm. the same story can be created innumerable times and it's still interesting yeah and it's still captivating is post originality a thing is that a term it is now <laughs> coined um because I think about that a lot, especially in, in music. Uh, you're a music person, right? I am. Yeah. yeah. Also, I love music. Um, <laughs> and something that I find really interesting is kind of the ongoing discussions around sampling in music. Um, and even, like, I, I thought about it, like, the um, recent trial with Ed Sheeran over mm. uh, his song Thinking Out Loud and Marvin Gaye's estate. Something I don't know the details on that. Yeah, basically, someone representing Marvin Gaye's estate sued Ed Sheeran for having too close for under the guise of having too close of a, a chord pattern oh. to um, the song "Let's Get It On," and essentially, it boiled down to like it's it's one it's it's a common key. Yeah, yeah, common yeah. key, common chord progression. Like yeah. Exactly. Yeah, if you like, sue him, you could sue like a hundred other yeah. people. Yeah. And and it, it was kind of scary because if it didn't rule in his favor, it could set a pretty scary precedent for songwriting in general. Yeah. I mean, if I mean, if you do a single, like, if you do a single key, you could be sued. Like that's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. That would yeah. set a weird precedent for music. Absolutely. Yeah. And it puts it kind of puts fear into artists. Like, why I don't want to get sued. Like that would I feel like that would stymie creativity, which would be an issue. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, especially in music, I think sampling can be really, really cool. And obviously, I also believe in giving credit properly and paying artists for their work. Um, 
when I hear a song that someone, you know, it's, it's someone's vision and they've taken aspects from things that have inspired them before and they've interpolated it into this new thing. I think about like the process of recycling. I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't think that's like zapped creativity. I think that's just kind of like creativity developing with the times. Um, it's a very nuanced conversation for sure. But in a context of storytelling and, you know, yeah, storytelling in the broad sense, yeah, uh, it would take a huge amount of hubris, I think, for anyone to claim that the idea that they've just put on paper is completely original, considering the entire existence of the human race yeah (laughs) you know yeah everything is based off of something else we all pull inspiration from a million different aspects of our lives that we don't even understand or recognize exactly the and i remember as a younger person getting into writing having all that pressure in my mind thinking like i need to think of a new original idea Mm -hmm. a new this and the only thing it did was stop me from writing yeah because i'd be typing like oh this is derivative oh this is derivative (laughs) oh, well, this is derivative. And sure, sometimes, like, the first things that you put out there might be objectively shitty, but you just keep working at it. <laughs> and it goes. doesn't matter if it's derivative or not, because what matters is finding your authentic voice, mm-hmm. not coming up with, you know, something no one has ever thought of before. That's impossible now. But only, like, we're the only people who can say something exactly the way that we would say it, yeah. you know? drumming is like that too you can't perfectly replicate um anyone's drum style you can't perfectly replicate dave grohl or you know travis barker or whatever like even if you get like really really close down you get all the notes and you hit the timing and stuff like that small little things small little like um, i'm not a drummer so obviously i'm not like a huge expert here but just like those little intricacies in people's playings that come from essentially subconscious habit you really can't replicate that you can't replicate that with guitar bass singing Mm -hmm. um we can do as good of an impression as we can but there's always that little thing that separates one person's approach from another person's so letting go of the uh, pressure to be entirely original and putting emphasis on just on like expression i think is so important to get across to anyone (laughs) yeah i agree Something I need to remind myself of sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big thing, I think, as a as a creative that I think every creative bumps up against is, you know, that desire to create something completely original. Like, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's impossible. And I, I admire people that are willing to wear their influences on their sleeve and be like, yeah, this is what I copied. Absolutely. <laughs> I took oh, this yeah. and I ran with it and made it my own. Like, great. Yeah. Like, that's the sampling conversation. Like, yeah. Yeah, um, I'm interested to get your opinion, and then we're going to talk about horror movies, okay, hey, Russell? We'll get, yes, we'll get there. We're <laughs> on music now; it's fine. Yeah, we have to talk about music now. Um, it's the best part. Are you familiar with Vaporwave? Yes, and okay. I love it. So you're in support of that kind of technique of making music, then? I mean, expand on maybe specifics before I completely agree, but I love the sound. Can you tell me what Vaporwave is? I love the sound and aesthetic. I mean, I love love vintage shit. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I've been collecting VHS horror in my room for the past little while, starting a little 80s 80s horror collection. 
I just got the thing in the Evil original Evil Dead trilogy the oh, other nice. day. Oh, that's awesome! Well, yeah, uh, thank the you. The thing move like the, the film, the thing just hits every time. It's so it good. just gets you like, and for me, like I didn't watch it growing up. Like the first time I saw it was like a couple years ago, mm. and it it blew my mind. And it's like a forty or fifty year old movie already. No, in nineteen eighty two. Yeah, so at least 40 years. Yeah. And it just hit just hit me good. And I watched it a bunch of times after that, too. It just, uh, the the horror in that one stands up. It's still a really intense movie. Yeah, I believe it. It's like the and also practical effects from that era, like they're so cool when you yeah, learn about yeah. like what went into them. Oh yeah. I mean, the petri dish scene is unforgettable and every time I watch it, I'm like <laughs> Every it's time. so good. Like when he bursts out of the chest, it just gets me every time. Same with like like the OG Alien movies. Mm-hmm. Like it's so good. Like what they what the the tech they had and the the effects that they did were just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Incredible. So good. Okay, Vaporwave. What yes. Is this? Okay, uh, Vaporwave. I was trying to find the specific song that I was thinking of, but. The, the song that popularized Vaporwave, because it, it was around for a little bit first. This is a genre of music. It's a genre of music, yeah. Um, Arguably also a bit of a, like a style and aesthetic, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Accompanying yeah. aesthetic, for sure. Um, okay. The, the, the first song that got kind of popular was literally just... I, I can't even remember. I want to say Whitney Houston, but I, think it, I don't think it was Whitney Houston. But we'll just say, for example, sure. Whitney Houston slowed down 30%. That was basically the song. They added some extra synth lines on top and kind of, you know, changed it up a little bit. But it gave the song a completely different vibe. Really? Than, than the original version. Mm. And, and that's kind of the, the thing that Vaporwave was built on top of is a lot of sampling. That's It's a whole lot of sampling. And, yeah, very slow, kind of spacey stuff. Mm. I apologize if I offend Vaporwave fans with, like, this description, but for me, I've kind of always heard it as, like, kind of, not grunge in genre, but, like, grungy, disco, atmospheric pop. Yeah. (laughs) Grungy, disco, atmospheric pop. Okay. Yeah. Like, in the process of making it, not necessarily, like, in in genre, like, you're not going to hear Vaporwave that sounds like Alice in Chains. I mean, like... (laughs) It's, it's, you know, just kind of, uh, I think it, it probably would be a, a friend, I would say, of like the lo-fi music yeah. genre. For sure, um, yeah. Or the lo-fi recording movement. I think Vaporwave um, was kind of a stepping stone to this whole lo-fi hip-hop thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and I'm obsessed with lo-fi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, um... If there's things about, like, the recording process, I would need to know a little more about that before I fully agree to whether or not I support right. entirely that. But tell me a bit about that. Because well, I do love Vaporwave as a sound. Yeah, and, and you're you're definitely, like, in the right neighborhood uh, relating it to grunge. Because it does kind of have that, uh, like, punk anti-authority culture behind it because mm-hmm. it's like well i'm just taking this song slowing it down adding my own synth line and now it's a completely different thing and yeah. like the the person that made that song is totally right the the vibe of that song is completely different hmm. after the changes that he made to it 
You have to so, see if I can find that. That's really yeah. Cool. I'll I'll have to find what song it was. It's Macintosh something. I remember that. But I oh, can't. it's like the vaporwave. Yes, yeah. I I came across this a while ago. Yeah. Okay. Right. Once we're not recording, I'll I'll play it for you guys. And yes, we'll we'll do the comparison. Are we allowed to play music from here? I mean, what do we have? Eighty monthly listeners. <laughs> Who's gonna tell on us? Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. But we'll we'll do it after. Just okay. just for safety's sake. Okay, so what's the discrepancy on this video? Like, you said you might not fully agree with it morally. Like, what's the discrepancy? Because it's just... I sh- yeah, I want to be, like, intentional with my words. Um, because I don't know everything out there. I don't like to claim to know everything. Um, it, it would be impressive if you did. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, I just want to be very specific with how I answer mm-hmm. things. Like, I'm definitely in support of sampling... I'm in support, but I'm also really in support of giving, you know, creators, you know, and authors of anything that you're citing or sampling, like, credit for what you do. Um, and so, it just in regards to that question of the recording process, I don't know everything about it yeah. and how it looks for everybody. So, if there's been issues in that world regarding, like, you know, copyright issues and people not being credited, I don't want to, like, accidentally, like, say on, on the radio that I agree right with that um just kind of being careful there but obviously like you know i love the vaporwave sound and i think sampling is dope um and as long as it's done ethically and you know um, people are credited and you know and and or paid for their work Mm. um i think it's awesome interesting and i i think that the thing about vaporwave too is after that it kind of just became people matching that aesthetic like mm. you know the the slow synthy uh vacant mall at late night kind mm. of vibe like it, it just became kind of a it became a sound after that um and less of a, of a movement quote-unquote yeah mm. so yeah. interesting i just learned a bunch of new stuff i had no <laughs> idea that was a thing until now. yeah it, it's cool it's really cool music like i believe yeah you. Like really great music to drive around at night too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, honestly, the whole time we were talking, I, w- I was just replaying that one episode of Black Mirror in my head with the one with Miley Cyrus in it. Mm. I don't know if you ever watched that. I haven't seen that one yet, but I love Black Mirror. Yeah. Oh, so good. <laughs> Except for the newest season, trash. <laughs> no offense to Black Mirror people, but you dropped the ball big time. There was like one episode out of five that was good. It was. And they had big... Ni- Anyways, I'm getting off topic. <laughs> Anyways, but that we, episode... We can come back to this. We can. But that episode was... The one with Maya Cyrus was basically... She was like a, a pop star. Crazy, right? And then, <laughs> no way. Unbelievable. Miley she, Cyrus a pop star? Yeah. Get out of here. So they changed the name. And then she went... She was like going through like a weird like grunge phase. And then the, the like the, the her manager, who was also her mother, was like not into it. So then they like put her into a coma and then but they could still like suck out her brain waves so she was like writing music in a coma and then they would like record it and then like like put it out and like sell it to the public Mm. it was a good episode that's yeah you should check that one out weird it's really good um that was basically it but all right now we can talk about horror movies uh sure I think we should. I, yeah. love, I mean, that's a good segue in a horror It is movie. a good segue, yeah. yeah. 
Huh. But yeah, don't bother with the newest season. Well, there's like one. The one where the guys go to space, great episode. <laughs> I watched the first episode. The Joan is awful. Oh yeah, no, that one's good I too. didn't mind that one. That one was okay. Yeah, yeah. that was an interesting concept. It yeah. was, it was. Um, Love Shit's Creek and it was nice seeing Annie Murphy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> actually, you know what? For everything that people have talked about Shit's Creek, I have not actually seen it. Like I've seen clips and bits, but... Yeah. I never really. I tried it. I watched. Way. I think the first season. I, I just couldn't get into it for some reason. It just didn't hit me. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think I'm just really picky about like the sitcom. Is that a sitcom? Yeah. Okay. I think so. Yeah. I don't know what what defines a sitcom these days. Do you know what defines a sitcom? Uh, I wouldn't be confident enough to you know guess yeah. a guess a definitive answer on on radio. Because like I just <laughs> I just assume every comedy show that is out there is just a sitcom because it's got real people in it i think if it's like every episode is a contained story oh okay yeah episodes are half an hour long every episode is a contained story that's, that's a, good, a sitcom that's a good framework i yeah. like that yeah okay yeah Fair horror enough. movies what's the scariest movie you've ever seen oh yeah <laughs> what what still scares you every time you watch it um or do you not watch it because it's too scary Oh no, if there's something that truly terrifies me, I want to watch it as much as possible. Um, <laughs> there's not a movie that you won't return to? So there's one movie that I still haven't seen, even though I own a copy of it, pretty much purely out of like, this is apparently fucked up. Like, the most controversial horror movie you know, or the, the history of it, and so I wanted to own it out of out of curiosity, but we're going to touch on some of my ethical issues, even with myself in that. Okay. Um, mm, this is getting good. And I still haven't seen it, but I have it. I'll probably watch it at some point, but it, you guys might have heard of it. It's called Cannibal Holocaust. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I'm not familiar with it, but yeah. Zach's reaction gets me yeah. excited. I haven't seen it yet because I know roughly kind of the content that's in it, and I, I mean, I could guess the content by the name. <laughs> yeah, and like I watched the Green Inferno, the which is pretty much Eli Roth's like modern equivalent to it, and that was pushing it in terms of like gore and like context for gore because that also matters. Yeah, for sure. Um, the way gore is depicted, the context pre like you know kind of precluding it um, matters a lot for the impact, um, and that one was. Not a scary experience so much as it was just kind of like... Ugh. You feel gross watching it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you watch a dude get his eyeballs plucked out with a rock and eaten on camera. It's kind of <laughs> intense. That's wild. That's in the Green Inferno? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, it also happens to the kid from Spy Kids. As Junie? an adult. Junie from Spy Kids. Oh, not so, Mega Trainers. So there might, there might be a sick form of catharsis for some people. I don't oh, know. I mean, I didn't... Yeah. Wow. I There's mean, a certain comedy in that for me, at least. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> Just this devastating depiction of, a, of an actor from my childhood. Uh, <laughs> There's, there's, a, I love dark comedy, and there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a dark comedy in that for me. Okay. Um, so, Cannibal Holocaust is the one where it went to court, right? Because people thought that yeah. people actually died on set on camera in that movie. Yeah, really? and since I've learned a little bit more about the movie, things that have played into my hesitancy to wa actually watch it, even though I, I own it, um, I want to be really clear here as well that you know. 
I'm not here endorsing people go out and like watch the most fucked up things they can <laughs> because I think, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily, I'm, I don't like to be a prude, but I also, um, don't like to endorse extreme exploitative content <laughs> for this, you know, especially content made for the sake, like exploitative content made for the sake of being exploitative. Um, <laughs> that gets into some weird territory for me. Um, I do believe in like responsible storytelling, which we can talk about more, but yeah. So I got that cause I was like, Oh, I heard this movie is really, really controversial. And I looked a little more into it and I was like, Oh, there's some things that I certainly don't want to watch in this. <laughs> um, but yeah, essentially the directors were arrested upon release of the film uh, Which because they was also Eastern Europe, right? Italy, I believe. Yeah. Oh, okay. And they thought it was a snuff film because it was right. recorded like a documentary um, on you know small. Essentially, it was like a found footage type film, mm-hmm. um, and the gore was you know so realistic for the people watching it that they thought it you real. know it was real and it was so extreme and so what people were watching they thought all these extreme things were happening in real time so the producers had to like show people like (laughs) this is not real and then i don't know entirely the rest of the history around it i don't know if um like what you know if it went to court or what the court case looked like like imagine it did i don't know what the subject of that court case was because it could very it could so easily be obscenity profanity or like just ethics Mm -hmm. who knows um, and yeah, so I learned a little bit more about some of the stuff in it, which I won't necessarily describe, but I was like, ah, <laughs> uh, I don't know if I want to expose myself to that, but really? I have it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd say probably the most, there's different kinds of movies that are like rank in like massive impact, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, more recently, one of the movies that was just like most twisted movies I've seen that was like, it's essentially gore for the sake of gore (laughs) because the guy making it is a special effects artist and he likes to highlight the fact that he's really good at horror special effects. It's like his, it's almost like a visual effects artist, super fancy business card that people just happen (laughs) to really like. Um, and it's called Terrifier 2. Oh, okay. Oh, I've heard yeah. of it. Yeah. I've heard yeah. of Terrifier, for sure. Art the Clown. Yeah. I mean, Damien Leone, yeah, he's a horror VFX guy. Um, and so he directs this movie, which essentially is, you know, a whole bunch of super gory kills, <laughs> all connected by this clown that does has kind of an ambiguous story. And it doesn't really matter, because you're just watching a bunch of, like, super campy, like, old-school yeah. style... Uh, crazy gore effects Mm -hmm. and um, the reason I go I touch on on, I'll like bring that one up is like it's super over the top it's super gory Um, man there's probably people who would watch it and probably would be triggered by the content in it because I mean there's some you know like violence against humans is probably distressing for a lot of people yeah i would imagine Um, yeah but it doesn't specifically play on like individual traumas that large groups or like large minority groups of people might have Mm. um it's not overly 
heady. It's it's not cerebral in any way. It's just violent. Yeah, you exactly. Yeah, can't be. Yeah. yeah. Um, story like shot content that you know I'll just come right out and say it. Shot content that intentionally exploits people who've been abused, mm. or have like experienced extreme traumas like that. Um, whether that be you know groups of you know a specific gender or you know sex or uh race stuff like that um content like that i i I think there's there's a responsibility in depict in like you know one should ask themselves why am i working with this Mm. when working on it what are my intentions with it especially if you're not from that community right you know um that's something i like to think about a lot and that's why i'm also really careful about like what i you know say about certain things you know yeah of course of course um yeah you know i don't want to accidentally be misconstrued as being like hey everybody i endorse this you know this movie that um exploits victims of you know childhood sexual abuse or something like that Mm -hmm. i don't want to do that i don't like that (laughs) like i don't believe that stories can't be made i believe it's really important that stories be told about, um, you know, those, those dark things, but I also think they should be done right. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, justice should be done to victims in those scenarios. Yeah. We can, if we, if that's not relevant for context, we can cut that out if we want. Um, no, I I have a, I have a follow up question. That's fair. I just want to be like, you know, really, really clear on, on, on those, on those guidelines. Cause that also bleeds into a, like my, you know, stuff with the local crypt and all that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Terrifier 2, definitely the most twisted movie I've seen recently. And I was also, uh, mm. gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> um, having a good, a good party while watching it. And it was very intense. Yeah. Um, yeah. that can definitely com- completely like change the vibe of a movie like if you're if you're under the influence of something it mm. change like if you're watching like you know Doctor Strange <laughs> and you're just high as a kite it's a totally different experience yeah uh, it's just yeah that's very fascinating I like how movies do that and... I wasn't sure if we're supposed to talk about that on here or no, if we're not talk, allowed we to we can talk about whatever you want oh, okay yeah. so I was referring to weed <laughs> <laughs> I was on a lot of weed while watching Terrifier 2. Uh, yeah. Okay. It was a lot. <laughs> I have two questions yes. to follow this up. One is more serious, but the second the second one is um where where are you what's your opinion on this whole clown this fear of clowns? Because it is huge, and it likes you know. It, obviously, there you have influences from you know Stephen King's It, and and other older stuff that involves clowns. But where do you think this comes from? Because I don't get it. Like, what's its origins essentially? Like, what do you like? Why do you think it's so? It's become such a phenomenon. Hmm. And like, why? Why is this such a big thing? Why are clowns so seen as so evil or scary or like, is it because it's to do with kids and there's like a trust thing or is it like, 
that you can't see their real face. Like, I don't know. Like, I ask people all the time, like, why are clowns so freaky? Like, I don't, I'm not scared of clowns. There's so many, I've, I, I love that question. I can't wait, yeah, can't wait to talk about it because there's so many layers to it. And it can be different for people, but it's certainly a fairly common uh, anxiety as well. What was the second question you're going to ask? The second one was um, an ongoing discussion between Zach and I about um, the recent biopic about Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> Mm. That we, because you were talking about like ethical storytelling, and we like go back and forth on whether it should, they should have made that or not, and how they made it. And, um, well, yeah, that's yeah. basically it. Yeah, because they like, it was the first time that they had ever done a fictionalized, like, act, acted out storyline of like a real life serial killer for the most part in pretty recent memory. Yeah, there was the Zac Efron, Ted Bundy movie that came right. out like a year or two prior. But, right. Yeah. But yeah, like what, I guess like the way, like we're kind of like going back and forth, like is it ethical storytelling to put this out in the way that it almost idolizes or um, kind of fictionalizes these characters that were real people that killed r- other real people in like the not so distant past but whichever one you want to start with yeah i'll I'll, I'll go with that one yeah um because i've I've been thinking about that a lot yeah i haven't seen i haven't seen the series myself Mm -hmm. um true crime is kind of only something that i like dive into when it's maybe connected to like another narrative or or it you know touches on the origins of a certain genre of horror that I'm into. Um, but it's not one that necessarily draws me a lot, so I don't engage with it too much. But I have, like, a couple of thoughts on that with the uh, Dahmer film. I mean, I like Ryan Murphy. I have issues with some of the ways he's, you know, used certain content in some of his films merely as like shock device or at or like irresponsibly um used content for certain you know narrative purposes Mm -hmm. um like i really like american horror story but there's but like i think of the first episode of season five with you know the drill bit package demon and the heroin addict in the hotel room oh yes yeah that served no purpose to the rest of the story and was merely kind of just like a, a really twisted like depiction of layers of trauma mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff for me it takes me it takes it out I it takes away from the experience <laughs> um interesting and um yeah some like I like some of Ryan Murphy's content, and I believe he generally overall has like good intentions, but sometimes kind of like doesn't have enough people in his you know employee circle being telling him like this is a little bit of an out of touch approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the the Dahmer document or not documentary, but the Dahmer um, biopic, yeah, yeah series. Um, I've heard from, like, I've kind of heard and read bits from, you know, people surrounded by people who are affected by it, as well as people who were affected by it, um, and seen a lot of discussions about it, you know, re-traumatizing people, 
Mm. Um, and based on what I know of it, I guess I would like to sit down in a room with a couple of beers with Ryan Murphy and all <laughs> cell phones out of the room. Yeah. Every recording device imaginable out of there, just to sit down in a room like you and I are right now, take all the recording device out of it, pour a couple of IPAs, and mm-hmm. be like, what was your intention? Yeah. Like, mm. not not the scripted <laughs> answer yeah. you get, you know, the production team would give the media about this, or like the elevator pitch, like, what was your actual intention? What did you really want to achieve from this art piece? Because... From all the discussions I've, I've I've heard about it from people who watch it is like oh this was so twisted and so messed up and he did this and he did this mm-hmm. and the police did this, and I think there's an important story that needs to be told in it, especially with you know the fact that the police were so negligent in yeah. investigating uh, a crime because of race and sexual politics. That story needs to be told, but I don't know if the you know victims' final moments. And those, you know, those moments of what, you know, you know, what happened to them need mm. to be reenacted for people's entertainment. Yeah. yeah. That's what I mean by like, exploit, exploit, you know, um, exploitative content. Like, it feels like, it, you know, at the end of the day, they made this series put out on uh, entertainment content streamer for people to consume and view and hopefully view again Mm. um, and talk about and share to other people. It was, um, like, obviously, important stories can be told in entertainment. But with content like that, like, if, yeah, if the victims or the victim's families in that scenario feel that it's, you know... Um, it's harmful to them. Mm-hmm. Then I kind of want to lean on that side too. Yeah, like they kind of get the final say, right? Yeah, I've never been in their shoes, um, and you know, I I think it's really important for the people affected by something to have their own say in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet. Not sure if I will. The other thing that I have seen as I've watched a lot of actors roundtables and every time Evan Peters talks about it like he can't hide like it looks he kind of dissociates a little bit he looks kind of spaced out from it mm-hmm. he when you watch some of the interviews where he talks about it he's like uh, there's in the actors roundtable he pretty much like just looks at the table with anxiety and he's like yeah it was really hard for me because they're asking him the, the question of whether or not actors can shake off roles yeah. that they take on when they leave set. Um, and Evan Peters isn't like a method actor or anything like that. And he was saying that it was really hard to shake off acting out the things that he was acting out in, in this film. And people will say like, he chose to take this on, you know, it was his choice. Um, there's an aspect of truth in that, but I mean, um, there's contracts come in you know come into play people Mm -hmm. need to work and he has an ongoing professional relationship with ryan murphy from you know american horror story and stuff like that and i remember he talked about season seven of that show where he played all those cult leaders Mm -hmm. affecting him a lot as well and you know to touch tap into that kind of mentality again for jeffrey dahmer and when he talks about it he's very like 
stressed out. Mm. Like he doesn't, and it, it, you know, he recently put a statement out recently, you know, saying that he was going to take on lighter roles. He wasn't, you know, he was kind of stepping away from those dark characters because it, you know, messes mental health. And I, you know, I'm not surprised. I kind of wonder if there's going to be longer term effects from that. Oh yeah. It can easily take a toll yeah. on someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, I mean, look at Heath Ledger, right? Yeah. He, I mean, obviously had pre, he had mental health issues before the dark Knight, but mm. I mean, he, going into that movie was locking himself in a hotel room for a month straight yeah yeah it obviously changed something in his brain Mm -hmm. that's that that still makes me sad yeah to this day i mean that's the conflict i have watching the dark knight is i love watching that film but there's always this like pang of sadness watching it yeah yeah you know that's like that's his that's his last movie guys yeah like after this it it's it's done Mm. yeah that's a hard one um i i i mean obviously i'm not like a big fan of you know endorsing celebrities in general and stuff like that but i i do appreciate you know kind of like the honesty with you know evan peters has you know mentioned that he's not going to be you know he's stepping away from that um because yeah, I mean he's a phenomenal actor. I want to see some other projects that he puts out. I think he has a lot of versatility and range. Um, it'd be a real shame if he burned himself out taking on these really dark roles and you know stopped engaging in something he's clearly so passionate and talented about and talented in. Yeah, like that's a shame for anyone of any level or caliber. Yeah, exactly. Like his stuff when he was like Quicksilver in the X Men movies. He was, he was, like, the best part of all of yeah. those movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of fun, for sure. Yeah, so he can easily do light. He can do yeah. funny. Like He's a great comedic actor. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, just branch out, do some other stuff. That that Even, like, American Horror Story, that takes a toll as well. Mm-hmm. Like, just being a, just, a, yeah, he's done a lot of stuff. Yeah. Like, I think I got to, like, I think I got to, like, Hotel, or, no, I think I was in Roanoke, and mm. I quit after Roanoke, but, yeah. There's some dark stuff in there too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, like there was this huge uproar years ago about the TV show Thirteen Reasons Why, um, mm. and the you know the final you know suicide scene right. um, in that series, and you know psychologists are coming in being like, this is very harmful and and irresponsible to you know people who struggle with this like this is like you know it's it's sensational mm-hmm. um which isn't a good thing <laughs> always no, no. um I and about that show. yeah yeah probably for well, the best. it was probably the first time that i was really confronted with ethical storytelling and like ethical uh filmog- like filmography i guess mm-hmm. um if that's the right term i, I might be off base but it is um right. because I remember thinking like, oh, it's, it's suicide. Um, that's going to be really hard. I wonder if there's like a need for it to be like that. Like I wanted to like, like why did they show it the way they showed it? Um, and I was looking more into it. And then I think the thing that really solidified my take on, on like the, you know, the writers for that show and the, you know, behind the scenes choices of, of you know, that decision was when I looked into the book cause I hadn't read the book first and I saw that in the book, that whole scene was depicted a different way. Mm. They changed the visuals of that scene to make it more shocking for people. Mm. Ah, that's a shame. 
and it had this huge um this huge effect that can't be diminished um and i think you know that's really screwed up <laughs> for lack of a better <laughs> vernacular i don't you know as someone you know who's been through some pretty intense like um medical world situations i guess you could say um regarding autism and stuff like that which i can get into a little bit later i don't mind um i wouldn't you know i hate seeing autism depicted poorly or through a lens of eugenics Mm. um i also have a hard time seeing scenes of like electroshock therapy not that that ever happened to me but i've written tons of you know you know in school like for other you know classes i've been taking i've written a lot about the treatment of autistic people historically um and it's pretty it's it, like i've seen some pretty horrifying things like you know there's you know reserve documented pictures of you know electroshock therapy being applied to children essentially they call it electroshock therapy it's torture yeah like kids being forced to walk along electric grids with shocks controlled by a doctor to make them um, essentially limit certain behaviors or um, break them into submission, full-on abuse and stuff like that. And seeing that depicted in front of me, if it's like for the sake of entertainment and exploiting (laughs) interest from other people, like, oh, well, you know, these are like experienced, I guess, you know, people from from that you know from this community that i'm also a part of being exploited Mm -hmm. in this way having their stories exploited through other people um irresponsibly and that that makes me really upset Uh, i can imagine for other people going through that it's probably the same i don't have the experience of you know the you know the the racial experience i recognize i have a lot of privilege in that world as well despite you know other things i'm not as privileged in um and I can't imagine the layers of trauma that come from, you know, both like queer and black experiences, especially with the Jeffrey, like in context of the Jeffrey Dahmer story being just kind of like thrown out there for other people's entertainment. Yeah. Um, I, I can imagine it's quite horrifying. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's a kind of a rambly <laughs> statement. We can maybe edit that down later. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> all right. Um, yeah. Because I know, like, you still refuse to watch it, Zach, right? The Dahmer thing? Yeah. Yeah, I... Yeah. I, I'm just kind of not a fan of yeah. it. Yeah, like, I watch it. Like, it's... I don't usually watch true crime or any, like, the serial killer stuff, so it was a change for me to watch it, but I definitely wanted to know how they treated the character, right? How they... what How much they tried to humanize him, how much they tried to put him on a almost like a pedestal almost which is very it's very weird to, to watch that and know the context but yeah and that's the thing about it for me too is I, I i think i would just much rather you know watch a documentary mm-hmm. or you know not that i read books but read a book about it you know like i don't know what you gain outside of entertainment from watching a show like that yeah, that's like, fair. I think they boil down because I mean, a documentary should still be entertaining, right? But it should uh, be educational. A book should well. still be entertaining, but mm-hmm. you're kind of boiling out everything else when you make a biopic. You're boiling out all of the, 
you know, the hurt and all that stuff, and you're just boiling it down to entertainment. That's mm-hmm. it. Nuanced topics should be treated with appropriate nuance. Yeah. 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 And I think that, to your point earlier as well, there definitely is an interesting story to be told there, for sure. Mm-hmm. But they just didn't tell that story. <laughs> and it was the same with the Ted Bundy, Zac Efron one, mm-hmm. where, uh, yeah, it was just, you know, hey, look how much this guy got away with. Isn't that crazy? Like, yeah. It's appealing to kind of like a, I guess, a cultural trend and in interest in true crime, which is probably something interesting to be looked into as well. But I'm almost more interested in, you know, the up, you know, the, the rising trend of, you know, I guess, uh, on mass interest in true crime. It's fascinating. Just from like a, not even from a judgment standpoint, just from an academic, like standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot about why horror is so interesting (laughs) culturally, but like, I don't know why, like, I mean, I can make, you know, calculated guesses as to why true crime is very interesting to people. Um, especially different, you know, true crime stories. Um, and unsolved cases and stuff like that um yeah but yeah i just don't know too much about it i'd love to see more like fixated research on it yeah like i think true crime is usually just a good mix of a lot of things that people may not always want to admit that they like to see but they like to see it whether it's mystery or you know the lengths of human depravity that they would go to and the shock and awe and yeah there's a lot of different culminate there's a culmination of a lot of different aspects that people just like to like to indulge in i kind of wonder if there's i mean this is entirely speculation i kind of wonder if there's also an aspect of it that you know has to do with more modern like social divisions Mm. um you know, not knowing where, where people stand on, on things that are so important to you and, you know, the feeling of alienation from other people or trends and, you know, rising amounts of loneliness and, um, and fear of others and stuff like that. I kind of wonder, um, if more people are getting interested in, in true crime because they want to kind of see the demons in society mm-hmm. for yeah. what they are kind of versus what they all fear. Yeah. To either justify or to contextualize their fears in some way. Mm. Who knows? I mean, that's entirely just something I'm interested in knowing if that is a thing or if it's not a thing, I'm not making an actual claim here. I'm just yeah. curious if that, if it has something to do with that. Probably, probably. There's so many things that are, you know, related to the so- current social divides Mm-hmm. Um, that we probably don't even really think about, but we just do, um, out of kind of being so submersed in, in, in a culture that's kind of divided in on itself. Yeah. Did you ever watch that movie, The Platform? I think it's an Italian movie. It was on Netflix for a while. Very good for, it's very, it's a very social division movie. The premise is, did you ever watch that one, Zach? No, you told me about it. Yeah, Yeah. it's really good. Like, very poignant. So, the premise is that you... Different world where you can't... If if you're in a lot of debt or you need to make money quick, then you can enter this 
it's kind of like Squid Game a little bit, where it's like you can you you're entered into the platform, and then it's this really long tower basically, and there's like a hundred levels or something. I don't remember how many, but there there you got two people per level, so you get a mm. random level and you get put on this level with another person, and then there's a a platform in the middle that goes up and down, hmm. and at the top it's full of food. Interesting. And then every and then it goes to each level and it's there for I think a minute or something like that. And then the theory is is that if everybody took what they needed, there would be enough food to get to the bottom. But the people at the top take as much food as possible and then by the time it gets to like the middle of the tower then there's no food left so you've got the people at the bottom that are like cannibalizing and killing other people and all that the usual stuff but classic age capitalism but it's super (laughs) it's super interesting like putting it in that light and then there's like of course the main character who like tries to upset the system and change things and Hmm. yada 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 but yeah check that one out yeah i will um is that on any like I think that one's on, it was on Netflix when I watched it. Um, I don't know where it is now, but it's phenomenal. Probably somewhere. (sighs) Those movies are like, those stories are really good. You know, when they put like Mm -hmm. a fresh take on just destructive capitalism and absolutely. Yeah. Um, Going back to, like, you're bringing up the clown thing. Oh, yeah. I was hoping we get Okay, let's yeah. dive into this clown thing because yeah. I want your take on this. I think it kind of changes for people and maybe it changes over time. And most of what I know about about it center around what I've learned about its origins. Mm. And it's... Some people will say it's a little more specifically, like, close to, like, blew up maybe around the John Wayne Gacy situation um but there was i think kind of cultural um fear of clowns kind of predating that for some people the there's something inherently unnerving i think for a lot of people about fixed expressions yes Um, that's what i was thinking they made an entire movie on that kind of aesthetic called smile oh yeah that just came out pretty recently yeah Where, I mean, you see this person, essentially the demon, like, jumps between person to person through um, one person being exposed to another who has the possession, and it's depicted through the person essentially just, like, smiling, like, in that Mm. case, at you like this. (laughs) (laughs) You can't depict that on the podcast, really, but I looked like a nutcase for a second. It's true. Um, Can't confirm. (laughs) Um, And... Yeah, I think that one really just jumped right into the whole fear of fixed expressions. Yeah. Um, it's, it's unnerving, because when you, at least I find, like, when you can't predict what someone's actually thinking, when you, when, like, you're confronted with such, like, a potentially hostile wild card like that, um, yeah, I mean we like things to be predictable. We like to know when we're in danger, when we're not in danger. That's kind of human instinct. And I think for some people around clowns, they, you know, there's so much makeup. There's so much like fixed expression in that, that there's almost a sense of like, you're human, but you don't look human. Like, like an uncanny valley. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I believe, and I could be very misinformed here. I want to, you know, once again claim I'm not an expert on things, but I've I've read and watched documentaries and stuff, and I believe that there was a while there where like clown makeup, how it was done, depicted certain like forms of clown or um, intentions that people could easily kind of read um or there's like a psychology to it i think where you know there would be an intentional use of round curved like makeup right. and eyebrows and the expressions whether they were depicting a sad clown or a happy clown it was like using shapes that were not immediately like harsh to the eye especially a child's eye right and then in Maybe it was like traveling shows or, you know, clowns depicting something else. I believe there became like essentially people who would do their clown makeup as sharp lines. Right. Um, that immediately created a sense of even just by the if just by the makeup instilled kind of a hostile um, interpretation, I guess. Hmm. I could be way off base it's just kind of what i remember reading <laughs> no that's fair that um, makes a lot of yeah. sense that makes a lot of sense because the, you, you you picture the classic clown it has mm. those rounded features those that rounded mouth the big red round mouth mm. and yeah it makes sense it makes a lot but of then sense. something like art the clown it's like two vertical lines down his eyes right yeah yeah and kind of a pointed mouth he shares more with mimery than he actually does with right. clowns yeah um yeah, I think uh, the John Wayne Gacy thing really, yeah. really amped it up because that makes sense. Um, society is probably just if that didn't kick it off, then society around that time was getting used to like not every enemy is this easily recognizable threat from somewhere or someplace else. Your enemy could be your neighbor. Yeah, um, I think that's a lot of serial killer thought process as well right like the Mm -hmm. the whole like why they're so popular and why people are so freaked out about serial killers is that yeah it could be literally anybody Mm -hmm. and you wouldn't know yeah very interesting stuff i've uh i have heard an interesting theory about the clown thing if i if i can interject with that um clowns share a lot of physical and behavioral attributes as alcoholic parents yeah so like the rosy cheeks the red nose though that's a common symptom when you're inebriated on alcohol uh the kind of like inappropriately jovial behavior is very alcoholic e Mm-hmm. The you know they stumble around a lot they like so people that find clowns make them uncomfortable might have also There's had alcohol correlation yeah. oh that's fascinating yeah. I never would have put that together yeah I don't know if there's been any, any data on it I, I can't even remember where I read that but but it's yeah. an interesting it's an interesting yeah. add-on. there's yeah. some crossover I mean it, it could be confirmation bias you know like you're looking for something and there it is but yeah but yeah like that compared with the 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 forced expression compared and the the hostile wild card that was something that you said that I wrote down like that's to an alcoholic is a hostile wild card absolutely i mean 
I work at a at a brewery, and you know, as you were serving alcohol there, and it's interesting because I've never heard that before. Never even really thought about the fact that I get anxious around drunk people, which yeah. helps yeah. with my job. Yeah, <laughs> but um. <laughs> Because everything's just so unpredictable. And that's a it big is. thing that clowns work on is like, you never know what they're going to do next. I never thought it's about why I get like, I mean, I've just always assumed it was social anxiety because I, I have that. But like, drunk people are very hard to predict yeah. sometimes. And especially if, you know, you didn't realize that they're drunk and then, you know, they come down again after having like that drink that tipped them over and then, you know, you're like, oh, this person's visually drunk and you got to cut them off and you're not sure how they're going to react. That's a little like, yeah unnerving sometimes um never thought about that but that's really interesting yeah huh you just dropped a bomb on it zach (laughs) it's interesting i think about it a lot because my wife is one of those people that's that's scared of clowns very fearful and i always kind of like wanted to know why and yeah and i mean stephen king capitalized it on capitalized on it in such a very interesting way Mm -hmm. where I mean, it's so neat to me that what people remember about it and how people often describe it is the scary clown story. Right. Because, yeah. you know, the amount of clown content, I'd say, actually in that book is maybe, like, less than, a, less than a quarter yeah. Yeah. of it. Because um, if, if you've seen the movie or read the books, I mean, we know that Pennywise uh, is amorphous he's literally fear itself yeah um and that fear takes on forms various forms of what you know his victims are most afraid of it's part of why i think it is one of the most important horror stories Mm. as well um yeah it's great it's phenomenal. There's so many important things about it. There's also certain things that deserve to be critiqued about it. But <laughs> nothing is above critique. Exactly. Uh, but it's such an interesting um, character. But yeah, he he touched on clowns because there's so much of that happening at yeah. the time. Had and you know could easily kind of like throw that as uh, an anchor, I guess, for his villain and his interactions with. Mm-hmm. all of the uh all of the kids and their adult counter you know adult um characters in the book um and it 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 worked i mean it, it, it had a worked. massive cultural impact yeah um i i just i'm very curious to, to wonder like if that had never if it had never happened like would the clown phenomenon be as big as it is now like probably not like, i'm not I just i wonder i'm not sure because people are really good at spiraling and their anxiety and people are really good at latching on to some weird shit that's true um to get worried about i mean considering how many times you know various conspiracy theories have come out that have all recycled the protocols of the elders of zion and the whole like fear of you know child predators being like your socioeconomic enemy sort of thing you'd think people have gotten tired of that narrative but no people are scared of the drag community because they're worried (laughs) that the gays are grooming children um all and all through a wormhole of you know, the Pizzagate conspiracy, (laughs) um, which is again, just another really, 
poorly rehashed version of the protocols, the whole idea of a cabal and someone's political enemy targeting children, which is a common thing that instills a protective nature in in all of us, right? Well, because, you know, I feel like for anyone, the desire to protect, like, society is most vulnerable like that. Yeah, it's instinctual. Yeah. Um, and so that's why it works. But sometimes it still surprises me how quickly people jump onto it without, like, thinking, this seems familiar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's... We forget very quickly, though. We forget very quickly. And it and it's led us to some dark places many, many times, yeah. including right now. I would say so. But see, you know what? It's because it's always about the kids. That's why it's also with the clowns. There's a there's a factor yeah. with the with the children as well. Because yeah. like someone like like you know I'm 27 going on 28, and you know like when I was a young kid, it was still okay to like, you know, it was still cool to have a clown, mm-hmm. you know. But now it's like no, you don't have clowns. <laughs> like that's a very rare thing to do, <laughs> just because the the stigma has changed and the society has changed that you like clowns aren't cool anymore but yeah it's weird yeah yeah the the child predator is actually an interesting angle on clowns that i never thought of too like that's probably not something that was really thought about much until the last you know 50 to 100 years is is child predators right Mm -hmm. so yeah i think it it, kind of go hand in hand with like serial killers like you don't know who it is yeah it could be anybody yeah and statistically speaking it's almost always somebody you know yeah which is scary and an adult whose job it is to win over children and make them laugh like that is kind of a creepy thing right it's interesting because this conversation does come full circle to an earlier question that i didn't even answer which was like what was one of the movies that kicked kicked it off oh yeah yeah or one of the movies that scared me as a kid and it wasn't really a horror movie but it was the lovely bones I watched that when I was like maybe 13 or 12 or 13. Um, and it was so intense. And it still holds up today as extremely intense. I don't um, that one. And you don't really actually see violence. That and When a Stranger Calls, you don't really see any violence. And don't get me wrong, I sometimes like violence in movies. Me too. But I also have a huge amount of respect for a movie that can build tension from the restraint. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, When a Stranger Calls, it's brilliant because so much of that entire movie is just hallway shots and the knowledge that you're, you know, the person's enemy, the person trying to kill them, is just somewhere around the house. It's that simple, and it's that tension, and they rarely show any violence in it. I think it was really smart. Um, and The Lovely Bones, it's all, like, the actual murder scene in it is all claustrophobic. He gains the person's trust. The character goes, you know, into the thing. You know what's going to happen, but you know that the time that this story is taking place, she has no concept of this kind of danger yet, right? And so you know what's going to happen when you see him open the trap door and he's like, come check out my cool fort. And you're like, don't go in that fort. But it also doesn't have that layer of like, oh, this person, you know, is stupid because you know the context that the story is taking place, that those predators... Like those demons, you know, in that we now are fully aware of, like in society, didn't like register for people at that time. So she trusts her neighbor. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you see her get uncomfortable. And then the last shot you see is just the trap door being closed. Yeah. And that's it. And I remember watching that and I was like, that's fucking.
fucking terrifying. And that was like the first couple minutes of the movie. And then the rest of it is you're watching her stuck in this like kind of purgatorial afterlife, influencing events around her family, helping her father find the killer who was their neighbor. And you watch the family kind of unravel and like into this like tension. Um, all while that neighbor continues to go about his regular business mm-hmm. <laughs> right next door. I remember watching that as a young person, and there's so many things about it that I was like, this is scary. <laughs> and it yeah. left a huge impact on me. I watched it like a horror film. Hmm. And Interesting. Yeah. Sleepy Hollow and like Tim Burton things got me really obsessed with like just the practical aesthetics. Mm-hmm. But... The Lovely Bones got me really interested in, you know, the way um, stories of, you know, life and death and darkness and human pain and suffering is told. You know, it got me interested in that in a Mm. a unique way. Yeah. That's fascinating. I love just hearing, like, how people get to where they are, like, what influences they have and what really sticks in their mind and those things that really jar you and stay with you. Yeah, that's interesting. Then on that note, we should talk about the local crypt. For, <laughs> oh, yeah. Your, yeah. your whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, this, so... This was all a preamble. <laughs> <laughs> I just very love... very long preamble. I'm so happy to just talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah, so are we. Time. That's why it's, we're not like a half-hour <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um... And obviously, you know, just the reason I'm here doesn't obviously have to be the main purpose of Evan's conversation. But yeah, the local crypt. I love I love writing. Um, I have a good community of friends who are writers. Um, the stuff that I do um, with Common Room, I mean, we all kind of like help each other. You know, it's all kind of like shared goals and stuff like that that we work to. But I know that something I focus a little like focus a bit more on is like the writing events that we're kind of throwing on mm-hmm. as well um it's like our you know regular songwriter nights um but instead of playing music you know it's group of people getting together and we don't pick names out of a hat last time we did it we played spin the bottle and if <laughs> the bottle lands on you then you read your story nice. there's no or your poem there's no pressure to share anything as well. If the bottle lands on you and you're not there to share, you just want to listen and join the conversation. Respin, it's totally fine. Um, we want to bring in you know people who like to hear poetry and hear stories, and we like to get other writers connected with each other. Um, and our last writer's night was super, super fun. Um, we got another one coming on the 18th oh, nice. next week. Um and yeah i was part of the cascade i worked at the cascade um last year as the uh started as a staff writer and then worked as the arts and review editor um and then i left in the uh, last winter semester um and i just fell in love with the fell in love with the process of writing and working with other writers and putting together you know um uh, putting together an issue of something that we can be really proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've come in touch with a lot of people who are both writers and fans of the genre, and obviously it's such an important thing 
to myself. Um, it's a huge special interest of mine. It's a very important thing for me on an emotional level as well. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just thought about the idea, like, what if we did a horror zine? If no, even if no one writes for it, just to put some of my own stories out there, just for fun. Yeah. Um, and yeah, my you know my mind just immediately just started spinning, and I was like, this is so exciting, and it's so fun. Um, so yeah, it's, it was honestly kind of a, a last minute thing that I just jumped into, <laughs> an, an impromptu endeavor i just wanted to put on a you know put out a zine so that's that's when i uh, made an instagram and i and i talked to you guys and uh just kind of put it out there that that's what we're doing is it a fairly new thing fairly new yeah, yeah. i've been obviously like thinking about wanting to do this for a month you know a couple months or so um and then i just kind of you know, I hope swearing's loud on your podcast. I do that a lot. I just kind of said, fuck it. <laughs> and decided to go for it. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that we can print. Um, I also want to distribute for free. So if I Love was that. like, if I can't afford to print, then it's going to be online until I can't afford to print. Um, but if I can't afford to print, then like, as if, you know, if I can, then I, I would like to distribute to local coffee shops mm-hmm. and stores and just give them out for for anyone who wants to read it yeah um i want to be pretty liberal with you know lengths for stories as well um because i i love diving into like a slightly longer short story Um, like a novella well not quite a novella but a lot of short stories i read around 20 pages or so okay yeah um, but if we're printing and there's multiple people submitting and, you know, yeah. stuff like that, uh, could be 50 and it could easily no become way too big of a project. So I'm trying, we're still trying to figure out exactly how long, you know, where we're going to cap off the length, mm-hmm. but, um, submissions are open <laughs> and, um, we're going to be putting out our submission guidelines this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm hoping that we can accept like, you know, at least like short short fiction up to like ten pages or so, um, ten or fifteen pages. Uh, flash fiction, which for those who don't know, is you know, piece of fiction prose up to about a thousand words, mm-hmm. um, just like a small kind of like micro sized piece. It's a harder thing to do. Because you gotta contain a, a, it's a very interesting thing to do, but you gotta contain a narrative in a really short amount of time. I'm interested to see if people submit stuff because I love reading that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, really looking for personal essays and academic essays, whether that be about um, the messaging, like the uh, social messaging behind a certain horror movie or franchise, or your personal connection to a horror movie I have an essay that I wrote about um it and its impact on my journey with grief oh interesting um and I know I've read essays about people I read one essay a while ago about um from someone kind of likening their like you know experience watching the film hereditary Mm. to extrapolating aspects of their journey coming out as queer oh um yeah 
It's awesome. very interesting stuff. See, that's the kind of stuff that we want to read. Yeah. Like, it's just sitting on someone's computer somewhere, and it's like, no, 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 <laughs> give it to the world. If you're interested in that kind of thing specifically, there's a book that um, a dear friend of mine got me okay. called um, It Came From The Closet, and it's a collection of essays by queer authors about... That's a brilliant title. Yeah. <laughs> that is a good title. About, yeah. you know... Uh, various horror movies that they're passionate about and their um, you know, connection to it as yeah. you know in relation to their experience being part of the LGBTQ plus community. Awesome. That's yeah. cool. It's I a like really that. cool project. And yeah, we're interested in that kind of stuff. We want to promote a diversity of voices. We obviously don't want to shut like people down much regard mm -hmm. there is like a few things that you know especially with horror that i like to keep in mind yeah there there's some lines you probably shouldn't cross no um i don't really like i don't really want to get like too crazy with like censorship and stuff like that mm -hmm. in our in our zine but um we also don't want to be publishing extreme shock content mm -hmm. for you know we, that's not really we're not looking for i mean well we're not going to turn our nose up at like a pulpy story if someone wants to write kind of like a a more fun upbeat or you know for lack of a better word pulpy alien story or mm. you know slasher story or something like that we're not gonna you know we're not gonna turn our nose up at that kind of stuff but we don't want like you know, I'm just going to come right out and say that we're probably not going to look for, you know, published stories that are like 15 pages of people being tortured. That's fair. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, if, you know, obviously the horror genre attracts aspects of, you know, things that are dark, things that are painful, things that, you know, cause upset for people, we're not going to shy away from violence. We're going to, to the best of our ability, put like, trigger warnings on stuff and have that note in the front like stories in here might have profanity violence drug use mm -hmm. stuff like that but we're going to try and like you know we're going we're looking for stories that you know use those kind of tough use tough subject matter in that regard respectfully mm -hmm. um and at the end of the day what we're looking for is just kind of creepy yeah creepy stories that people want to read something Makes your skin crawl a little bit yeah it's also fun to read yeah exactly because you know at, like you said at the end of the day things should entertain like you know and things that are meant to entertain should entertain mm. um and that's what we're really focused on but stories can also provoke and challenge us in really meaningful ways and we want to get that kind of stuff you know that you know we want to get meaningful stories like that in our um in our publication and share those with people and they want to give you know that platform to people who want to share that mm -hmm. um and i really believe that horror is such an interesting vehicle especially for outsider voices and you know minorities to really like express themselves in a way that you know can't quite you know do in other in other genres um, especially genres that, you know, deal with the supernatural provides such an interesting mm -hmm. ground for talking about the various things that we experience, whether that be personal or social, economic. Um, yeah, and so 
We want to entertain. We want to challenge. We want to provoke thought. We, we, what we don't want to do is exploit people's trauma. Yeah. So we have like some of those content guidelines um, guiding us. But yeah, we're also trying not to be too like conservative with it either. Yeah. Yeah, go wild. <laughs> um, sometimes I don't know where I need to strike that balance between talking about the importance of those things and also just like the fun joy of it entirely. Sometimes my, my mind can go a little <laughs> bit uh, chaotic with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think horror is just such an interesting genre. Um, it really, I guess, expanding on the personal connection to it and, like, why I love it. I mean, as as a kid, you know, you just love some of those fantasy stories. Yeah. I remember when I was young watching Coraline, and it was both horror and fantasy at the same time, and it was beautiful and horrifying. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get, like, the childhood wonder where she goes to this other world from this place of boredom everything is so colorful and interesting and you empathize with her because you're like, yeah, I would be, I would hate it too if I lived in this rain-soaked industrial, or, you know, industrial hell <laughs> that Coraline was in and, you know, escaping to this colorful alternate dimension where pretty much everything is possible um, and your parents spend time with you. That's, that, you know, there's so many things about, you know, there's layers about that that make it, you know, Coraline so interesting. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, the parents bring out the sewing needle and they're like, we want to sew buttons in your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and you just think about, like, they don't even do it, but you just think about the process of getting, a, like, a button sewed into your eye. And you're like, Ugh. yeah, we're adults and that's awful. <laughs> None oh. of us want buttons sewn into our eyes. Uh, I just remember seeing that and I was like, they put that in, they put it on a movie, in like a, a, a cartoon. Little me was like, this is awesome. I want more of this. Yeah. Um, there was just this kind of immediate appeal to it. You know, it was like zany. It was dark and creepy at the mm-hmm. same time. Mm-hmm. Um, having like experienced like a divorce at a young age, that like tension with the parental relationships, one, you know, parent like, you know, feeling distant and stuff like that. And, you know, the desire for things to be the way they were before also was really like impactful. Um, and I thought it was so cool seeing a story told that way as an, you know, years later as an adult and had a similar experience watching it where like, Mm. it's such a good horror in so many ways. There's so many aspects of, of fear and things that are scary thrown into it. You get zombies at one point. There's like, paintings and surreal you know coming to life and aspects of surrealism you know the clown itself is terrifying and also the way the clown morphs fears and plays on specific fears and traumas um i watched the i actually got into i started reading it like um a few months before my brother passed oh and then i didn't actually then like i watched the full movie um, I'm still reading the book. <laughs> it's a long book. It's huge. Um, I watched the movie and that the way that Pennywise plays on Bill Dambro's desperate um, search for his brother yeah. and then the way he plays on his grief as an adult 
and that lingering grief and the way it transitions, it was so important to me. Um, because when I would read about, like, when I see and read about Bill Denbro as a kid, and everything that he's doing with his friends is to find his brother. That's all that he can do, right? Even to the point that it's, like, causing tension with his father, because <laughs> he's building these, like, diagrams of the, of the, the ratways in the city and how things work thinking like oh maybe he's still alive and he just ended up over here and we haven't found him yet um and the way pennywise uses like the kid's ghost and his desperation i just i empathize with him so hard because at the time you know and even to this day there's not a thing i wouldn't do to have my brother back um and I just, I, I really related to that. And there's this aspect of the story or not an aspect. It's like a huge part of the story that they, the only way they really like, I mean, there's other aspects of how they fight Pennywise, but one of the big things about it is that they have to, the things that Pennywise throws at them to make them fearful, to make them afraid, to make them horrified, sad, whatever. Um, they need to overcome it. They need to, they need to confront it even if they can't even if certain things you can't completely overcome they need to address it face on and they need to make some kind of resolution to it they need to you know become bigger than the thing being thrown at them right um and it gave me this motivation to you know not i guess um you can't ever get rid of grief you can't ever overcome trauma of losing someone or um being abused or what have you the the various kids experience um but it you know it doesn't have to um end your life right there not in like the doesn't have to kill you but like it doesn't have to stop you from living Hmm. you know um and i remember just it having such a a huge impact on me and it like i like i already loved horror and then it took like how important you know that genre is to me and threw like steroids all over it yeah i love that um and then I've had other conversations with friends who see other things in horror movies that I just find so interesting. Um, I had a, I don't want to get too into the weeds of it out of respect for them, but I had a friend tell me about a, um, a piece they were working on about the um, vegan subtextual messaging of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> okay. And I've never watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre the same way ever again. <laughs> And it's like, you don't think about it when you think about that movie, but then when you watch it again with that context in mind, you can't think about anything else. I'm, I'll be honest, I'm having a hard time imagining it, but yeah. I believe you. In the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and again, like I'll, I'll try not to get too too into it because I, I have a friend who's writing about it, but essentially at the beginning of the film, there's like a long conversation about factory farming methods mm-hmm. oh. and what happens to animals in factory farms. Right. Um... And then they pick up, like, a hitchhiker who's supposedly from one of those areas, and they're talking to him, and it builds up this weird tension and craziness. And then when they go to the house, 
the things that happen to them have parallels to okay. the conversation at the beginning about factory farming and animals and meat production and then you find out that the director was actually vegetarian <laughs> oh fascinating it's yeah been a long time since i've seen that one i totally forgot it's great that. yeah the original texas texas chainsaw massacre is a great movie there's so many things about it that are so interesting yeah. Yeah. you know what i really like about it it's short hmm. it's like an under an hour 20 really it's it? really short huh yeah yeah like you, you know that's like a lunch break yeah yeah it's mm. quick I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I've always been that guy that kind of always steered away from horror. Mm-hmm. Maybe because it was the way I was raised or the influences I had as a kid. But I, like everyone kind of just told me it was like kind of dumb or a waste yeah. of time or mm-hmm. it's, just, it's just gore for gore's sake right. or, you know, there's no story to it, which yeah. is true for a, a, some for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think I kind of missed out on growing up with those like really like pivotal horror movies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And stories as well. I mean, um, Edgar Allan Poe and, mm -hmm. uh, Franz Kafka and, uh, who's that other guy who writes some really twisted and horrifying stuff. H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, some of those classics, you know, where we all, we all get exposed to at a young age um, can really, really set the, the imagination crazy. Um, to your point, I guess that actually, the reason I focus so much on, I guess, the social stigmas of horror, like the social value of horror in terms of its commentary and its... Uh, impact on people is because I think it gets such a huge disservice mm-hmm. from the general culture. People mm-hmm. treating it like it's um, a lesser genre. Yes, where people turn their nose up. I mean, I remember. I mean, I, I was in the church for so long. It was I was raised in it. I was you know in ministry for a while. Um, no longer am, but um, I remember talking to like you know, sometimes mentors or peers in the church, um, even just casually, right, and mentioning that I was into horror, mm-hmm. and, you know, you know, as often, does it happen about as much as if you're a Christian person and you tell another Christian person that you're into rap, and the first thing <laughs> they ask you is, have you heard of Lecrae or NF? <laughs> I would, That's so true. I would say that I was into horror, and people would be like, you know that verse in the Bible where they say, think on what is pure and holy? And I'd be like, yeah, and I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Even as a Christian, because the idea of, and I, th- and I don't think that's what this verse intended, but I think it's how it gets commonly construed. Yeah is this idea that we only focus on things that are good. We only focus on things that are pretty. We only focus on things that, you know, are of God. Mm. But, you know, know, unfortunately, a cold hard fact of the Bible, no matter how many um, might want to ignore it, something that I think most Christians need to make peace with in their faith, is that God allows pain. God allows suffering. God is not you know, as, you know, as they say in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, God's not a tame lion. He's, you know, the, the tenets of 
you know, mercy and forgiveness and, and repentance. That's, you know, all well and good, but I don't think you can fully characterize God as a holy, positive, harmless entity. Mm-hmm. You know, he allows for darkness and we, you know, I don't really believe in Christianity anymore, but according to the Bible, God allows for darkness mm-hmm. and we have to experience that darkness and, you know, we just have to go through it. Um, and I think it, it, it makes life better off when we can actually confront that darkness, mm-hmm. when we can look at it and, you know, confront it. Even if we don't get all the answers, if we can, you know, analyze the things that make us afraid or analyze the things that hurt us, you know, we take certain power away from it and it improves our quality of living. Right. Mm. Um, so yeah, I always, <laughs> I would like get that conversation so much and it's so weird to me that like, cause even to this day I've, I, I work with, um, like I've, I've met other Christians. Um, I still stay connected to some of my friends in the church. I have total respect for the faith as well and everything. Um, but like, I just, the, the cultural shit that happens is, I'm sorry, I hope this isn't disrespectful. I think it's so fucking stupid mm. and very, like, unnuanced. Was particularly, like, the bandwagoning over certain, like, ideals, like, not watching mm. R-rated movies and horror. Mm-hmm. Or not watching horror movies in general because they have demons in them. Yeah. There's demons in the Bible. <laughs> You're not going to read those chapters out of fear that Satan's going to come through the Bible pages and fuck up your home? <laughs> like... I'm sorry. <laughs> you can't have just good without the evil. Otherwise, good doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. So, I would always run it, <laughs> run, it run into that. Um, and then, obviously, you, our, that's important because our culture, you know, especially in the Fraser Valley, but in North America, it's very religious. Christianity mm-hmm. is very big out here and has huge influence on our culture. Oh, yeah. Um, and... Uh, where was I going with this? Um, oh yeah. You add that to the fact that horror often is treated like a pulpy genre, like, uh, you know, mindless entertainment sort of thing. Come watch the seventh Friday the 13th movie or something like that. And watch another person get hacked up with a machete for eight bucks at the theater while sitting watching on popcorn. Yeah. People have that kind of, you know, view of it. And that doesn't help that those movies are often treated as niche and thrown cheap, cheap production budgets. Yeah. And so there's not much that can always be done to make like super, you know, like horror films that compete with, um, certain cinematic offerings yet through that, like it's so resilient because through that, like it's birthed an entire art movements of creativity. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at certain horror films like terrifier that are made pretty much just to highlight what people can do with mm-hmm. practical effects in an age of CGI. Um, the What makes 80s horror so interesting, like watching them in 2023, is seeing how much was done with so little funding. Hmm. That's true. I mean, you see the arrow come out of Kevin Bacon's neck in Friday the 13th, <laughs> and you think, and like, I can call up Tom, um, Tom Savini talking about all of what they had to do to make that shot happen. Yeah how many materials and like the accidents that happen because of, you know, unpredictable practical effects that just make the, 
the scene so much more ludicrous or crazy. I mean, that much blood wasn't supposed to come out of Kevin Bacon's neck in Friday the 13th, but it did because there was an issue with the uh, um, air compressor or whatever that was shooting the, the, the red paint out. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. Ah, I love those little stories behind the scenes, man. Um, and it's so interesting. And then, like, as it progressed and, you know, there was a little more technical expertise, certain, you know, different things are being done, different... It opened up different storytelling methods. I mean, Get Out is such a huge movie. And it's like, it's a... What a film. Right? Incredible piece of cinema. Um, also, um, when you actually break down a lot of, like, the shots and, like, the setting of it, it's, like, a fairly simple setting, which adds to the horror. I mean, you know, you shoot it, and, like, it's, it's you know, shot in just houses and... Yeah. Um, making making horror out of the mundane in that respect and using it to tell such an interesting story about race relations. Yeah. Phenomenal, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, endless creativity. And it I feel like it's just violently underappreciated by people. Yeah. I, horror in general is, yes, for sure. Like, I, I can speak from experience. Like, I, yeah, like I said, like, for the good, better part of my life, I was like, I don't need horror. Like, that seems like a waste of time. But reflecting back, it's it's so much more impactful now because, like, like when I mentioned earlier, like, watching The Thing for the first time as right. an adult, I'm like, what is this? This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like, I get those experiences, which is really cool. Um, but, yeah, like, having a better respect for the genre is key because you, you see things that you never would have seen growing up with it. So mm-hmm. I have a nice, I have an in- interesting take on it now. But. Also, like, it's so interesting because in, you know, in an era where people are, you know, it's, it's more of a struggle to get people out to the movie theaters and oh, stuff yeah. like that. Some of the movies that are consistently bringing people in the most are horror films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They always do incredibly well. Because it's yeah. a fun thing to do. Either it leaves you thinking about something in a totally different way, like Get Out, um... Or you just have a crazy experience with some friends and you walk out of it laughing and talking about all the scenes that made you jump and mm. you remember it for years. I went and watched Blair Witch, like the reboot, oh, yeah. with some pals um, back in high school and we like snuck a few little like uh, airplane shooters <laughs> in our in our coats and, well dro- and dropped them in the, uh, in the Coke bottles and you know, settled in for this, uh, for this movie. And I mean, whether or not the Blair Witch reboot was like all that good of a film Mm. is like debatable, I guess, you know, like it kind of irrelevant. It doesn't matter. But it was, we were watching a huge, on a huge screen with big surround speakers and we jumped numerous times, um, because of that. And it was super fun. And I'll remember that like, probably for the rest of my life, just as fondly as I remember sitting around the fire making s'mores as a child watching Meet the Robinsons Mm -hmm. with my family. Yeah. You know? It's like a, it's like a inside out, they call it a core memory. Yeah. You know? It can also be that. Like, it can be this crazy, um, cerebral and powerful thought-provoking experience and it can also just be the, like, most fun you'll Mm -hmm. ever have going to see a movie. Or read a book, even, yeah. you know? Um, it's, you know, it, it frequently gets underappreciated, and yet it's also, like, such a, you know, major cultural experience. 
I agree. Yeah, I still. What was it? Oh, uh, try. What was it called? Try not to breathe. I think it was called. Don't breathe. Or don't breathe. Yeah, yeah. Don't breathe. Mm. That's a way better title. <laughs> the Alvarez. Yeah, I I saw that. I was I, I went on a date and I saw that one in the theater. Interesting date movie. Yeah, it was like a, like a full on first date and we went to see this movie and like I had no idea what the premise was because I'm, like, I'm not gonna bother reading the premise. So I just went in, watched it, and it was. Oh, I love it when people do that. Game changer, man! Like it's not even like I don't even like the movie that much. But I'm like when they like when they pulled the turkey baster out. I'm like, oh man, what is going on with this movie? <laughs> yeah, yeah that, so it sticks with you. It mm. sticks with you. Fidi Alvarez has such an interesting eye for things that will just be burned in your memory. Like for you, the turkey baster. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's uh, Evil Dead, the 2013 oh, yeah. reboot, where uh, the scene where you know they're equivalent to ash chopping his hand off with a chainsaw from evil dead uh, 2 and evil dead 2013 there's like you know the person's hand gets possessed and she sees like the like the inky black demon thing mm. crawling up her arm and the only thing she has next to her is an electric meat slicer <sighs> for me <laughs> and, and i don't need to fill in the blanks here yeah that movie specifically too yeah the scene where when she's fully possessed and she comes out of the crawl space and licks the the box cutter and cuts her tongue in half yeah i think about that a lot that is oh yeah so gross i i own that movie i i watch it so many times <laughs> that's a great movie it's too. it's so good yeah. it's really scary yeah. yeah they do a good job of taking out the camp from the you know the original series and kind of doing their own thing with it yeah um and making like a truly scary experience um yeah there's i've seen it so many times and like there's times where like it's different things too um i'll just look away and i'll still have or like other times where i'll just force myself to like stay at looking at the screen because yeah. i'm like i don't want to look at this i hate it yeah and, and you know it, it never fails to elicit a reaction yeah um, i remember showing my dad a while back because he was like oh they can't show like they can't get like that crazy with special effects <laughs> and i was like hold my beer dad and yeah. i showed him a picture or not a picture i showed him the final shot in that movie with the uh raining blood yeah. and the fully possessed like half torn open person mm. and he takes a chainsaw and <laughs> chainsaw through the face moment classic yeah. evil dead shit my oh, dad was like what the fuck <laughs> <sighs> so cool I'm so glad that like so many people can experience that oh yeah that's like, just so much did you ever watch the TV show for evil dead watching it right now actually I'm Are a little you... late to the bandwagon because I love evil dead but nice. yeah I'm on season 2 right now oh I love that show it's it was so, so it's like campy and wonderful and just stupid and great at the same time and at times they do actually have really scary characters yes Ellie goes from season one um, like the blue kind of demon that looks almost like a bit of like a xenomorph yeah, type yeah, yeah yeah that like if you look at it like he moves at a different frame rate to the rest of the actual um, action oh, I didn't that. it's crazy and it's awesome and it's actually scary but they also still keep that like campy tone as well yeah it's awesome they do such a good job with that mm -hmm. just that like crazy gore but and crazy special effects but also just fun it's mm -hmm. just fun it is fun they don't they don't lose sense of that like yeah i mean 
I definitely share it with people where, you know, watching crazy gore and none of that, like, you know, silliness or sense of fun plays into it. Yeah, you kind of wonder, like, why am I watching this? Like, what's the point? Mm -hmm. It's part of why I haven't seen Cannibal Holocaust yet. Yeah. You know? But it's also part of why I love watching Terrifier is, like, yeah, it's crazy gore, but it's very Mm self-aware and silly. Yeah. (laughs) And over the top. And yeah. there's, like, an aspect of comedy to it all. I mean, in Terrifier 2, there's a scene in the Halloween store where Art the Clown is just standing there with, like, putting on silly plastic sunglasses and making weird expressions. The person's like, what are you doing here? And he pulls out, like, a little, like, thing. He's like, honk, honk, and just stands there just being an idiot. And the actor is clearly having fun. Um, and I, yeah, I remember showing it to, uh, someone who's really not a horror person. They didn't like see like the, uh, the actual murder, but like I was showing them just art, the art, the clown taunting the person. Cause I, it was weird watching it for me. I was like, that scene actually gave me a lot of tension hmm. while making me laugh at the same time. It was a really weird feeling. I was like, oh. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> like... But the, uh, the person I was showing it to, who hates, like, gory stuff as yeah. well, was laughing. They were watching it, they are like, this is silly. And they were having a good time, just watching, like, that little, you know, moment. They didn't really want to see the person get a bottle shoved through their face. But they enjoyed that other section. Yeah. And I don't know. I think, I, th- I think, you know, it can be equally it can be as funny as a comedy and and you know thought provoking is the most mind-bending film you've ever seen like the horror genre yeah 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 it's 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 beautiful when you break it down like that it is and you the experiences you get watching horror movies and seeing the different types and the different the ways that they've grown as a genre over the past hundred years it's wild yeah it really is i'm curious like it doesn't we're do- I mean, obviously we're here talking about the context of horror, but you guys are, we're all film people here. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, like a good movie. I'm curious, what are some of your guys' favorite movies? Oh, top movies? Yeah. It depends on the genre. It depends on the genre. Like, I usually have a couple for each genre. Um, hmm. <sighs> My answer to that question is always, there will be blood. Oh, yeah, true. Really? Yeah. yeah. So I haven't seen that one, actually. You should especially as a horror fan i think you'd like it a lot mm-hmm. like if you uh have you seen breaking bad yes you like breaking bad. breaking bad it's like breaking bad the movie like yeah watching it... well i mean similar similar I get the protagonist yeah. journey of you know watching somebody descend into madness and greed and mm-hmm. I really let like it take Daniel over Day lewis as an actor he's incredible yeah. I don't think there's anybody that doesn't like Daniel Day-Lewis. And yeah. Paul Dano in that movie, too. Like, mm-hmm. he just, he always does such a good job of playing a pathetic little worm. <laughs> I love that. It's yeah. great. Paul yeah. Dano's a That's really, true. really good actor, yeah. too. Yeah. Really, really. I feel like he's respectably appreciated, you know, by other people who are definitely, like, film nerds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I feel like he doesn't get enough appreciation in, like, the larger, larger yeah. world. Of, yeah. of actors yeah definitely not but he, he deserves to like he's he's a very talented guy even if he is mostly just playing pathetic little worms it's a typecast thing man yeah it is it's yeah. like evan peters it's like all right you got to break out of your shell dude yeah like, you got to do something else or else you're gonna be the horror guy forever speaking of typecast did you guys ever watch i haven't seen it yet either but if you guys watch that movie um called magic magic where michael Sarah plays a serial killer no. Or like a 
like a psychopath type character. Interesting. No, I haven't. I've yeah. never even heard of that. I haven't seen it yet. I've watched the trailer. It looks deeply unhinged. Yeah. I'm very Is curious. it newer or? Um, I think it must have come out around 2013. Okay. Around mm. that era. Huh. Yeah, you don't expect Michael Sarah to be a good serial killer. No. <laughs> yeah. That's like, um, what, oh, okay, what's the guy that played Venom in the first uh, Spider-Man trilogy? Uh, oh, Topher Grace. Topher yes. Grace, yeah. He was in the one of the Predator movies. Right. And then halfway... Was that the one of the Adrian Brody? I think so. Or was that the newer one? It was, like, in the middle. It was in the middle of the Predators. But the premise was that, like, they brought all, of like, the world's killers onto a planet. And then they were hunting the Predator. I love the idea of Eric Foreman hunting the Predator. Yeah. <laughs> but then Topher Grace was, like, this, like, doctor. He's like, I don't know why I'm here. And then halfway through the movie, you're like, you re- he figure out he's actually a serial killer. Yeah. And it was like, oh, that was wild. But huh. that was, I don't know why I brought that up. But that was just fun for me. Yeah, because I mean, especially with Topher Grace, I mean, so many people mainly know him as you know Eric Foreman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like he went from like wimpy doctor to like serial killer, and he like switched on a dime. I was like, mm, okay, that was impressive, especially for a Predator movie. It wasn't a good one. <laughs> I think it was Predator. I yeah. love Alien versus Predator. Yeah, not gonna lie. Like, that's a good one. It's so fun and stupid, and I love it so much. Like, uh, I mean, I don't know how that even came came together, or who in the production room was like, "We well, yeah. know what franchises need to be merged: <laughs> Predators and Aliens." Yeah, it was a weird time in Hollywood. Yeah, but I'm so know, glad they did. Yeah, and they were like, "Oh, Freddy and Jason in space," and I was like, yeah. "All right, yeah." Let's I wish do it. that Jason X was so fun as well. I wish that they would take more risks like that. Like, it just yeah. seems like every movie now has to be a sure thing. Like, oh, yeah, this is going to hit for sure. E- yeah. Even though a lot of the times it doesn't, mm-hmm. i.e. The Flash. Like, yeah. I- I'm sure five years ago that movie would have hit like crazy, but now people are just getting sick of superhero movies. But, yeah. Bit, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Wow. There's a lot of baggage that comes with those DC movies nowadays. Sure, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my point is that movie really only got made is because they looked at a list of superheroes that didn't have movies yet mm-hmm. they're like oh the flash great that's gonna be a sure thing let's, that's fair let's throw it out there that's fair yeah but like alien versus predator like you could never do that now it's too big of a risk yeah i and yeah i wish they did that more yeah <laughs> i mean because even if it's not like a great film or it doesn't get successful as you know a revered film that people take seriously. Sometimes shit is just fun to watch for the yeah. sake of, you know, watching something ludicrous and silly with your friends. Oh yeah. And we're still talking about it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like I'm I'm tempted to watch Alien vs. Predator now. <laughs> I'm tempted to. Yeah. And the fun thing about that too is it's like a really fun movie. Um that like especially if you're, you know, within reason if you're, you know, an older fan of you know horror movies and mm. you know those older horror franchises but you know you've got like a family or younger kids like with again within reason you can still like watch those yeah. with your family yeah. yeah it's a bonding experience it can be absolutely like yeah. i like i you know i i would 
reckon that Alien vs. Predator is more than appropriate to watch with, like, you know, someone, you know, like, you and your, you know, 10-year-old son. Oh, yeah. Might be a little scary, but, like, the it's The stuff fun. that kids are exposed to nowadays, that's, <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, also how much, like helicoptering there is around like what what kids are exposed to yeah and stuff like that i mean my mom i mean she often talks about it as kind of traumatizing her a little bit but my mom talks about being a kid and her mom making her watch the omen with her oh really? <laughs> just and it leaving such a huge impression on her she was like absolutely terrified obviously and my grandma just didn't want to watch it by herself so she made my mom watch it with her as a kid. Brutal. <laughs> and now I'm sure that if like, you know, my 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 grandmother was like a especially say like a single mom, mm-hmm. or you know a, a mom in you know younger mom right now, and that story I put on Facebook is someone who'd be like, what the fuck was she doing letting her child watch that kind of movie? That's bad parenting, blah, 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 blah. We need to be more careful of what we let our kids see. Get the fuck out of here, man. <laughs> Sometimes it's just fun to watch some scary shit with yeah. your family. I, I mean, that. I don't like... I don't think that obviously every kid should be exposed to everything, but I definitely think we do a little too much hand-holding. Yeah. In, in they society. can handle it. Yeah. Kids are resilient. And even if it if it becomes something that's a pivotal shock thing for them later on, yeah. at least you have a good story. The most, like, the, the biggest effect that watching Alien vs. Predator had on me when I was, like, 10, something like that, was just, I got obsessed with aliens. Yeah. And, like, cool slow motion action shots. <laughs> I love a good slow motion action scene. It's cool. That's I fair. like and you know yeah it was awesome i just want to see more scary creatures on the tv <laughs> please like the monster genre is dying so quickly yeah and it's so sad my professor uh, one of my professors from school carl peters um brilliant guy mm-hmm. suit also like one of the most infectious passions for horror ever oh awesome. just try and get him on the podcast sometime that Let's dude do can, it. that yeah. dude can talk forever he is awesome he's from vancouver i don't know if that's like you guys try to stay more local, but yeah, yeah, he's take anyone. he's so cool. Um, but yeah, um, he talks about his uh, nephew. I guess he saw on TV like an old Dracula film or like an old Frankenstein film or something like that. He expressed like interest in like the monsters and scary stuff. And, you know, Carly's like, all right, well, I'm not going to give you, like, Friday the 13th, or I'm not going to, like, show you, like, the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula. But he went out and he found him a really cool, like, collection of just old Hollywood creature features. Like, he got, like, Frankenstein, Dracula, and, like, Creature from the Black Lagoon. And he gave it to his nephew for Christmas. His nephew's just obsessed with it. We're talking, like, a kid who's, like, maybe nine, between eight and ten years old. Um, and the next time he saw his nephew, he was, you know, his, like the kid was talking in depth about Creature from the Black Lagoon and all the things he pulled from it and how much he loved it and how it just like kicked off his whole imagination Love and that. just watched it so many times. And there's nothing harmful in that. No way. <laughs> it's just healthy interest in something fun. Yeah. Also, that movie holds up. I mean, it's not scary. It's just fun to watch. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I don't even remember saw that that was a long time ago 
that's so sad you know like you get all these movies and you're like oh yeah that one really holds up I'm like I don't even remember that movie <laughs> which is too bad uh, I don't think I've seen it really yeah oh should it's, maybe check it out it's so like easy to miss out on things when we're constantly saturated with content it is yeah. and like the fact that now we have such an a, such an outpouring of content like currently like the chances of people going back and watching the older stuff are so low because they're like, oh, have you seen the new Man- season of The Mandalorian? Have you seen all of the Marvel content coming out right now? It's like, oh, no, I'm not caught up. It's like, well, then of course you're not going to go back and watch something from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, any of those decades. But it's just it's just unrealistic to expect people to keep up with everything and also know their older horror movies. It's, it's, it's just sad. Mm. And... Yeah, like if even even if we're talking about like literature, like the classic horror, whether it's Dracula or Edgar Allan Poe or Lovecraft or Isle of Doctor Moreau or anything like that, it or Frankenstein, it's like those were critical, and like if you don't respect them and go back to them and read them, then you wouldn't understand what the, the current horror literature even is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. Late, it's 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 fun because I've been trying to write more atmospheric kind of stuff and think more about like, you know, I guess systems and kind of background stuff in my stories, because mm. um, you know the un unwritten rules of your universe have drastic impacts on the continuity of a story and everything, um, and so I've been reading Lovecraft more because he's really really good at that. And I mean, it's kind of a struggle to get through sometimes. I don't, I don't say this to be like a golden boy in any way, but like, it's kind of a struggle to read sometimes just with how overtly racist Lovecraft is. <laughs> there's no beating around the bush with it. I yeah. mean, there's some, like, you'll read, there's a chapter I just read where I was like, I wrote, I annotate my books and I wrote in the margins, holy racism, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, you know, there's... It's an interesting experience because, you know, there's, there, there's, uh, reflection and learning that happens at the same time Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's a, for me, it brings up, I've been thinking more about how I view like some of the social conversations around content and like censorship and stuff like that. Um, and Yeah. I mean, it should never be discounted just how raw and, and, and messed up some of the <laughs> things racist, you know, or H.P. Lovecraft writes about that are, you know, yeah. racist, but, like, I don't know, I hate using the word but, maybe I'll have to edit this a little bit later, <laughs> but, like, you can extrapolate also, like, you know, I mean, there's no denying that he has huge impacts as well on the way that horror is written, and there's a lot yeah. you can learn from reading it yeah. and rejecting of course, um, you can pick out the good from the bad, right? There's, yeah. I don't think there's a lot of people that would argue like you shouldn't read Lovecraft because he was racist. Like, no, that kind of defeats the purpose of reading it. Yeah, and I think about it like, I don't know, or no, I shouldn't say I think about it in a slight, but like, I mean, look at what taking, accepting the entire text of something as infallible truth has done to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Like, I was taught 
as a kid from like all of my peers and stuff like and all of my mentors teachers pastors i went to higher academy and stuff like that i was taught in those classes when we talk about revelation when we talk about certain books in the bible be like oh this is metaphor for this or this is um you know this might have been chopped up due to interpretation and then it was weird a few years later those same people were like no every word is the infallible word Mm, it's of all god literal. it's yeah. all literal it all has to be taken <laughs> literally and then i thought about the bible and i was like that's terrifying <laughs> right um and we've seen some of the uh the effects in like the trend in um i guess or cultural christianity mm. you could say i still follow this a lot because yeah. no that's all yeah I love like immersed, the stuff. It, immersed in it for so long. These conversations are, they have to happen, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, not everything is inherently bad and not everything is inherently good mm. either. Um, I really kind of abhor a lot of things, especially more recently that Jordan Peterson has to say mm. and the way the rhetoric he takes in the media. Um, at the same time, if, you know, him telling grown adults to stand up straight and clean their room helps those grown adults out of some bad depression, good on them. Yeah, good and bad, man. Good and bad. I mean, maybe I'll, maybe I'll sound a little hypocritical here. I'm like, I don't necessarily think grown adult men should need to be reminded to, <laughs> should have to be reminded to clean their room and stand up straight because it's good for their mental health. But hey, whoever's doing it. Getting them to believe it. They need that kick in the butt. They need that kick yeah. in the butt. So, That's I support. Fair. I support that. So, like, yeah, man. Like, I don't. Like, I can almost entirely reject a lot of what this one person has to say and still be like, oh, okay, but he had a good impact here. Yeah, there's value from everyone, yeah. even the worst. Yeah, um, and I, you know, yeah. Hmm. Obviously, I think it's a very like careful conversation that needs to be had about you know we are you know going back to like social divide and stuff our culture is so like like identity politics are so huge right now on both sides of things i mean people are i i even i have strong beliefs and you know morals and values and i have like kind of a spot that i fall on but i now really hesitate to talk about it like where i fall on yeah because like i get that you know, people treat, you know, I don't know, there's this crazy obsession with, you know, political identities as being, like, entire personalities and social identities, and, like, I think everybody should be strongly socially, you know, present and informed, and, you know, making positive decisions for themselves, and society but to make your entire personality about a movement or a politician or an author or a podcaster or a youtuber um is like absurd it is (laughs) and also to go out of your way to on the same side of the coin to like spend so much energy hating on one person and it's when there's you know more important things to focus that energy on that are more effective is you know is absurd 
you know, like... Hate is the biggest waste of energy we've ever had. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's never, almost never actually about the thing that you say you hate. It's yeah. usually just about something There's always else. so much more behind the, the ideology. Yeah. There's than hurt and there's what people pain. Spit out. Yeah. yeah. I guess when I think about that situation, the things that I wish that, you know, that I really wish at the end of the day was that, you know... There was more accessible, you know, like the government prioritized mental health supports better. Mm -hmm. Like, you I'm know, with you on that train. clearly it's rooted in, you know, deeply, um, you know, deeply significant traumas and um, ingrained social values. I, again, I never want to take accountability away from anybody but we're in such a such a reactionary moment such a, a visceral moment right now um and i mean that applies to i mean you see that reflected in a lot of the uh, tensions being analyzed in horror films these days especially with the work of jordan peele um and uh i don't know i think i think there needs to be better mental health supports basically that has nothing to do with what we're talking about we could <laughs> no, probably that, cut all of no, that out no, but... no 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 i love that <laughs> i completely agree like mental health is such a stigmatized such an untalked about such a just squished down into just un being unrelevant and it it can't be right like you said like your experiences and of your whatever it is it's just if people had the option, maybe we wouldn't be in the situations that we are now, right? If if we just had better availability, if people were more open to the idea of talking about things like this, you know, going to therapy, it's it's life changing. It can be mm -hmm. for a lot of people. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm in that boat for sure. Obviously, again, I never ever want to be misconstrued as you know. I've said it a few times already. I never want to be misconstrued as like taking away accountability mm -hmm. or like not believing in accountability and i do believe that like people that are doing harm should be held to account shouldn't be supported yeah. supported in, in in doing that harm but like people the way the way we like the way we've you know create villains to go after mm. only kind of distracts us from like i mean obviously things need to be spoken out against but the way we create these huge villains that we focus on only goes out of the way to um, distract us from doing things that have stronger effect in our immediate circles. Like, things change for the better when you focus on the world around you, mm -hmm. people around you. Your life improves and others' lives improves when we all focus on helping each other you know holding each other account is a part of that um but you know i i i hate the shit that jk rowling says on twitter it, it gets me going mm -hmm. um and I've, I've i've said some things about it before but uh jk rowling's not listening to me nope. <laughs> jk rowling doesn't give a shit about what Kellen, with, you know, 60 bucks in his bank account from Abbotsford, B.C., has to say. <laughs> she really doesn't. She really doesn't give a flying fuck. Yeah. But, you know, 
the close people in my life care. Exactly. You know, my friends care. My family cares. Um, and, you know, we'll talk and we'll hear each other out, you know, and there's more that you can do for the culture around you, even if they're not your friends, but just saying, calling things out when you see it, you know, that is so much more valuable than wasting, than, you know, going out of your, going down a rabbit hole on Twitter (laughs) and, and making 30 posts about something. I mean, if more, if, if everyone who made their entire focus on like activism and social issues on like virtue signaling on the internet and refocus that energy on, you know, the lives around them. Yeah. On, on, on just like the immediate world around them. Even if that's like, including like municipal, Mm -hmm. um, action and stuff like that, engaging, you know, engaging in your civic rights immediately in your, in your town. Um, that is more tangible than going, writing a a paragraph for people to skip through on their Instagram stories about how shitty this one person is when everybody knows how shitty this person is. Everyone has seen like a hundred stories with how much of a little cunt Jordan Peterson is. (laughs) I don't know. I honestly don't know what seeing another hundred stories with how much of a cunt Jordan Peterson is, is going to really like, (laughs) impact people's thoughts but if someone around you is like man i heard a really compelling argument about pronouns from from this and you're like well think about this that has more (laughs) that has so much more weight yeah yeah like you said it's, it's it's all about community it's about affecting the lives immediately around you affecting the your, right you got to fix your own backyard before you can even think about fixing anything else in the world mm-hmm. yeah. and for me that comes right back to storytelling mm. because when you tell when you take something that provokes you or inspires you when you take your love for aliens mm-hmm. and you write a really passionate science fiction story in the vein of like star trek or something you know, and you, and you, you know, you share it with others, like, that's your spin on, and your expression of love for the things that we can't always see around us, you know, that's your expression of curiosity for what we don't know about the universe, right? In the same vein, you write, like, a scary story where you take something you're afraid of, and that causes you anxiety, whether that's like grief or rejection or feelings of loneliness, and you encapsulate it into this like other form where you can deconstruct it in a safe way. Like, um, I think about Franz Kafka's A Metamorphosis, in that in a sec, like you have this like unique opportunity to put a critical voice out there that you know isn't an immediate casting of judgment on one thing or another, but you've put a critical thought or a challenge out there that can impact the way people think. It's a very powerful tool. And it's also one like it's also one that should be used responsibly. Um and one that should never be underappreciated. Yeah. You know, I think the written word has 
is so valuable and so important. And I think it has even, not to discount the importance of music on culture or on film on culture, but the written word, like, is so, 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 so timeless and so ancient and so consistent. Um, and books that were written years and years ago and even forgotten about are coming back now and, cha- and like, Im- you know, having impacts on the way we think about, you know, each other and the world. And that's just such a cool thing. <laughs> it is. Um, and that circles right back around to why I want to write more horror stories. Love it. <laughs> and why I want to read other people's horror stories. Yeah. I'm with you, man. That it, I, yeah, I think we, I don't, we can, we can't really add any more onto that. So that's a great, <laughs> great place to end it. It's fair. Sorry if I rambled too much and no, went some no, in some very good. incoherent directions. No, it's all good. That was, um, that was solid. Okay. So I trust that you guys will probably be edit, editing things for coherency. <laughs> but honestly, most of it is all solid. Yeah. Okay. So the local crypt, you can find you on Instagram. Yep. Submissions are open. Anything else you want to say on that? Express yourself. (laughs) Love it. Awesome. We'll end it there.